Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, and welcome to this rotating program, Tour de Force on this rotating globe tonight, tomorrow morning. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that kind of magical time where, well, you know, you've heard that spiel before, all the stuff that used to happen safely confined to this time of night. It's now spilling out all over the floor, and it's going on 24-7, and oh my God, cats and dogs living together. Hey, tonight's show, and I say tonight because here we are in the land of enchantment with a gorgeous moon out there. Um, Tonight's show is going to be one for the record books. I have been trying to get uh, my guest tonight on this program literally for years And our schedule simply did not coincide. And so tonight, after an extraordinary amount of effort and anticipation, he is here. And my rundown of some of the news items is going to all kind of funnel into what Richard and I are going to talk about for the uh, rest of this three hours once I, you know, get through the the top of the show here, Um, as as you will see. We're going to start with some very sad news. Someone that I've admired uh, for years, Sir Sean Connery, you know, James Bond, the original James Bond, um, died yesterday at the age of 90. And he had an extraordinary career. If you click on that BBC link, which is item number one, Radio with Pictures. And for all you new folks, you know, the way you get to our Radio with Pictures page is you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on... um, the um, uh, link there at the top, which says, he said, scrolling in real time, is a Nazi breakaway space civilization responsible for COVID-19 with the name Richard Dolan prominently at the top. Click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down. You can actually click on the fast links items under the um a banner there at the top of the guest page. Click on Hoagland. That will take you to my items. And there is a very uh, elegant story um, from the BBC on the life and times of Sir Sean Connery. Now, the reason this is incredibly ironic is because Sean Connery starred in this series of Ian Fleming films that basically, against the backdrop of the Cold War made repeated credible cases for private parties, private groups, private institutions, non-governmental, um, you know, kind of like, um, what do they call those at the UN? Uh, other than governmental institutions, that that entity could rise up with sufficient knowledge and influence and power to threaten the 
stability of the world. That was the whole theme of all those repeated James Bond films, those wonderful, you know, totally out of the water films. And that's kind of what I'm going to be proposing tonight in our discussion regarding COVID-19 and breakaways, et cetera, and the current state of the entire UFO uh, cultural uh, investigation. It's kind of like we're going to come at it from a Bond film perspective because when all is said and done, it could be that the actors behind the current extraordinary turmoil going on here on planet Earth tonight are not, in fact, governmental entities at all in the sense that we understand them. I mean, of late, you know, the president has been blaming China for the so-called China virus. Well, I'm going to probably upend that whole discussion tonight by raising the question when we get to that part of the program. Is it possible that China, instead of being the perpetrator, uh, even accidentally, of this catastrophe, was in fact its first victim? We'll pursue with evidence that line of questioning as the uh, evening and or morning, depending upon where you are, uh, unfolds. Item number two my items. NASA has found more water on the moon. And if you click on link number two, there's a very interesting story from Time Magazine. This was done uh, from Earth uh, with a very sophisticated uh, 747. NASA converted into a flying uh, above 45,000 feet observatory. It's called SOFIA. That's an acronym. It's got a very large mirror. I forget the size of the mirror, but it's a really decent, large telescope flying anywhere on Earth, which means it can track occultations. It can look at objects in the infrared from such altitudes that most of the Earth's water vapor is below the airplane, which means it can scan planetary or targets or, or the moon above most of the Earth's water vapor. And so what it did over the last couple, three years was to make observations of an area on the Earth side of the moon near the crater Clavius. And we'll get back to Clavius in a moment, why that's intriguing. Anyway, it scanned Clavius, crunched the data, and came up with a publication a few days ago uh, that, in fact, they found water in Clavius on the moon. Now, water on the moon, in any man's or woman's projection of how we utilize the moon for the economic infrastructure of Earth, is vital, critical, absolutely essential, amazingly breakthrough developmentally, because you can't have humans without water, you can't have technology without water, you can't have energy without water, you can't have rockets without water, because water is with the application of energy, i.e. solar energy, can become hydrogen and oxygen. And recombining those does a whole bunch of amazing things, including produce energy, fuel cells, uh, breathable you know, atmosphere, oxygen, and um, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, chemical rockets. Uh, and that's after you split the water with the application of solar energy. So water in situ on the moon is worth its weight in platinum. 
or maybe gold-plated latinum, <clears throat> you know, lapsing over into Star Trek. The point is, it's it's a huge discovery. <clears throat> it's coming perfectly positioned just before the big push in the NASA Artemis missions to the moon to be returning Americans by 2024, a timetable which is very aggressive. Or the other possibility is it's going to be of use for private industry. Look at Elon Musk. Look at his development of the Starship. Look at his contract with NASA under the Artemis program to develop the lunar lander that the astronauts will descend from the gateway orbiting the moon to the lunar surface in the Artemis uh, lunar return architecture. Anyway, all of that is contained as implications in that story that NASA's found more water on the moon because it's worth its weight in the most extraordinarily valuable commodity you can imagine. Okay, item number three, three and four. As you may or may not know, we have a spacecraft, an unmanned robot tonight, which is out something like 200 million miles away from the Earth, orbiting a little tiny rock in space about the size of the Empire State Building, like a 1,000 feet across, called Bennu. And it doesn't look like the Empire State Building, In fact, it looks like a very, very, very eroded octahedron. Remarkable geometry, which has been reinforced by a whole bunch of other measurements. Of course, NASA is not going to admit that its mission called OSIRIS-REx, OSIRIS, Orion, anyone? Rex, king, leader, ruler, um, that its spacecraft OSIRIS-REx is in fact Uh, orbiting an artificial object, but from our independent research, yes, it is. And these two images that were taken as the uh, OSIRIS-REx spacecraft was collecting a sample of rubble from the surface in a very dicey but elegant touchdown maneuver a few days ago. The first photo is the Uh, robot arm with the round collector at the end extending down from the spacecraft on the left-hand side in the frame just before touchdown. That's the background of Bennu beneath the uh, artificial geometry of the Rex uh, collector uh, head. The second photo, which is item number four, shows the the, uh, uh, surface of Bennu at the moment of touchdown when, according to a pre-programmed computer program, a burst of nitrogen was released through the head of the collector, the idea being that by creating a brief artificial atmosphere swirling around in a bubble under the collector head above the surface, a whole bunch of material would be entrained in the resulting vortex and would, like a vacuum cleaner, be sucked into orifices in the collector head that would then allow that material, those samples to be deposited in the spacecraft that is going to return to planet Earth in the next couple of years. Well, as you can see from that frame, when they released that burst of nitrogen, a whole bunch of stuff got blown up, meaning, you know, lifted from the surface. Because remember, the gravity field of Bennu is one one hundred thousandths the gravity field you're experiencing right now here on planet Earth. One one hundred thousandths. No wonder there's this sudden cloud of debris. Anyway, 
um, if you click on these uh, these two links, um, it will show you the more detail. I guess we don't have the link directly up that will take you to the NASA website showing you the actual film. Uh, we will put that up as, let's say, 4A uh, after the program. Item number five. This is where things get very, very interesting very, very quickly. Uh, item number five is a graph I used um, a few shows ago uh, to mark something I had discovered, which was so unbelievable, so astonishing, so out of the box that I literally spent months <clears throat> tracking down details and checking on the authenticity of the raw data coming into the European CDC, et cetera, et cetera, before I went on the air a couple of weeks ago and talked about this, this graph. This is a graph of COVID deaths, COVID-19 deaths worldwide from the beginning of the pandemic back in January, February, all over the world to October uh, 20th. Uh, I didn't make a new graph because the, the pattern just continues. Now, what's so stunning is that you can see that that line is not a smooth curve or even a somewhat jagged curve, but it's an intensely rhythmic periodic curve. And the distance between the peaks and the valleys, which repeat every seven days, let me repeat that, between the peaks and the valleys is a spacing of every seven days. The peaks represent the maximum death count per day on the graph, and the valleys represent the minimum death count per day on the graph. And for some reason, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, these are synchronized in 188 countries all over the planet reporting daily their COVID-9 cases from all over the world. Now, for those people who are suspecting there are all kinds of conspiracies lurking between COVID-19, yes, there are. And tonight we're going to discuss them, but not the ones a lot of you think there are. I mean, the level of conspiracy and ultimate objective here so far transcends what has been kind of viewed publicly so far. And we're going to try to enlighten you about some of the details and the documentation that supports this conclusion that it makes everybody's pet conspiracy theory, ranging from Bill Gates to doctors are making an extra two grand per COVID patient who dies, you know, really kind of pale by comparison. The real conspiracy is much more important, interesting, potentially catastrophic if it is allowed to continue. Moving on down, item number six. This is the actual link to the CDC in Europe, which compiles these statistics. There is an interactive graph when you click on that link, which will take you to that daily world death curve, death plot, uh, death, um, well, spiral is not totally accurate. The point is you can do these comparisons for yourself. You don't need to trust me or anybody else that people on opposite sides of the world simultaneously are surviving or dying in synchronization, which by any science we think we know is impossible. Now, the second part of this discovery, 
which I was very hesitant to even bring up a couple, three weeks ago because I wanted to spend more time researching it. And again, we don't have the link up there. We'll put that up as 6A when we update this for the uh, Club 19.5 archive. If you plot at the similar scale to the death, rise, and fall, um, item number five, if you plot that set of graphs, you find something even more bewilderingly unbelievable and inexplicable, which is that the daily count of new cases of the coronavirus. This is, you know, a medical person sticking a very long, you know, um, swab up your nose and trying to get a sample of the virus and then putting it into a container and then taking it to a PCR lab where they amplify the DNA, actually the RNA of the coronavirus, and that tells them how much virus you have in your system. And there's a whole bunch of controversies about that, and we don't have time to get into tonight, you know, the all the details. The point is, that's the kind of general assay of whether there is or is not a patient in front of them who has COVID. Well, there's just something very weird, because if you had a rising pool of increasingly infected people, even if you had a um, rising number of tests, the curve you would expect would be a accelerating curve for exponential growth or a flat curve if the virus transmissions and tracing and, and quarantining was working properly. But instead, we see a curve which has jagged ups and downs with exactly the same seven-day periodicity that we see in the death curves from COVID-19. And that, on the face of it, is just nuts. I mean, there's a more technical term, but I'll just use the colloquial. It's nuts. This is not the way chemistry is supposed to work. In other words, and this is the blindingly breakthrough discussion which needs to be held around this aspect of COVID-19. If you go in to be tested for COVID-19 on any random day, if it's toward Thursday or Friday, your detection probability is way higher by a factor of two or three than if you get tested on a uh, Sunday or a Monday, which is nuts. And the two curves, the death curves, the rise and fall of those peaks, and the COVID detection curves for the virus in random collections of people, the population all over the world is rising and falling in the same resonance pattern. And that is impossible unless there is something truly extraordinary about COVID-19 going on. Going back to a discussion I had with Joseph Farrell on this many, many, many months ago. And yes, I'm going to try to get him back on to discuss this. Anyway, item number seven, there is an actual paper called Oscillatory Dynamics in Infectivity and Death Rates of COVID-19. Click on that. It's by three authors, one at the University of Haifa in Israel, two others at the University of Illinois in Chicago, one in the Department of Chemistry 
the other a physicist in the Department of Physics, and you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm aggressively going after one of these authors, co-authors, to get them on the show to talk about the details because, and this is so important, I mean, remember, science is nothing if it's not independent confirmation. So if you go to that paper, click on that paper, you know, there is something really amazing that they say toward the end of their, uh, shall we say, opening. And I'm scrolling down here. I'm looking for it. Of course, when you're you know, looking for things in real time on the radio, um, it's very, very uh, hard to sometimes uh, find exactly what you're looking for. So I'm looking for this particular, because this was such an extraordinary statement for, oh, here we are. Got it, got it. They they go into circadian rhythms. They go into other periodicities. They go into harmonics, subharmonics, and overtone harmonics. It is particularly striking, the authors say, that the periodicities of COVID-19, infectivity, and death rates are almost in phase. And the same pattern is separately followed by very different countries. And here comes the capper. Even though these effects could be, to some extent, caused by periodic oscillations in human measuring and reporting of these events, we cannot exclude more profound reasons for these observations. Can anyone say torsion field physics? In other words, I got to get these guys on the show because this is, I mean, they had no idea I exist. I had no idea until I set Ron on looking for this, uh, that uh, they existed. And lo and behold, they're looking at exactly the same data. And there's a lot of very cool graphs. Just scroll down. Comparisons, discussion. Uh, the one thing they don't talk about is what needs to be done next to get kind of get to the bottom of this. It could be that this paper is kind of a prelude to an application for grant. But wouldn't it be interesting if we could get them to seriously look at the idea that there is another underlying planetary slash solar system physics, which is driving this disease in ways that, I mean, one almost cannot even imagine. So we will kind of leave that there. What you want to do now is you want to go back to the other side of midnight to the guest page. Item number eight, um, there are COVID patients, COVID-19 patients called long haulers. The, the statistics now from a couple of studies that I saw over the last week, <clears throat> about 30% of people who develop symptoms, and remember, a lot of people are asymptomatic and never get symptoms. But those that do, and this seems to be irrespective of age, they develop what's being called in the medical community a brain fog. They literally can't think. Um, and I believe me, I know what that feels like. That's what happens when I get those terrible headaches. And if this goes on long enough, I mean, we now have 9 million, give or take, recorded COVID uh, patients or people who have, you know, show genetically the disease in their bloodstream. Of those let's say 50, 60% develop symptoms of those 30% have long-term impact where they can't think. I mean, how can you function? How can you 
hold down a job if you can't think? Which raises, of course, the question, what was the purpose of COVID-19? Remember, our model, based on a bunch of independent data, is this was designed. This did not come from a random crossing of bats and other species in a Wuhan you know, market. It was designed. Now, in that vein, there are discussions about it was designed by the Chinese. It escaped from the Wuhan lab. And we all know the rest of the story. I have a very different take on it. I, my take is it's very possible within the data we currently have that, in fact, the Chinese were deliberately targeted as the first victim. And you may ask very logically, good grief, why? That we will get to in the next two and a half hours. Finally, item number nine. When looking at the potential impacts, one of the things I speculated about uh, many months ago is that maybe that there's an aspect of COVID-19 that makes the human race sterile. If anybody in the audience is a follower or fan of Stargate SG-1, remember there was there were several episodes about the Ashen, a highly advanced species in the galaxy to which uh, SG-1 made contact. And under the pretense of friendly diplomatic relations and establishing, you know, educational uh, exchange of di diplomats and scholars, et cetera, et cetera, the Ashen tried to send a bioweapon through the Stargate, unbeknownst to anyone on Earth, that would have effectively eliminated the human race by making them all sterile. If there was an enemy out there tonight, as we have mused, if there in fact is some group, some institution, some non-terrestrial governmental actor capable of A, spaceflight, B, extraordinarily advanced biological research, C, access to the ancient wonders and scientific and technological treasures of a formerly inhabited solar system, which of course is the backdrop of this discussion, perfectly possible that this extraterrestrial source is the progenitor of what is currently infecting planet Earth. And as I've been saying relentlessly for weeks, we need to figure out what the ultimate objective of this planetary assault all over the world, but particularly segregated to one hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere, which raises interesting questions regarding sources, origins, and modes of delivery. Why is Europe, which was so good at effectively killing this many months ago, why is it suddenly having eruptions where both Macron and Johnson are locking down France and Britain in desperation, in panic? What is panicking them when they did everything right? And up until the last few weeks, their curves were really, really small and flat. Is it possible that an injection, a booster of the infection in the Chandra Wickramasinghe model has literally been injected again into the Northern Hemisphere? And if it had been, would anybody notice because, of course, no one except us is raising the serious prospect backed by real 
scientific evidence that the problem we are dealing with in COVID-19 is light years beyond most people's apprehension or appreciation of what we're truly facing. Because if you wanted, and I'll leave it with this, if you wanted someday to move in on planet Earth and take the planet without firing a shot, all you do is destroy civilization by allowing people not the capability of reproduction. It'll take a generation or two, but maybe some folks have a very, very long view of history. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour, I believe, yes, and we're going to take a break here. My guest this morning, we'll introduce him after we make the turn here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and you all recognize this. Side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news.
And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Richard Dolan's a leading researcher, historian, and writer on the subject of UFOs. He's the author of two volumes of history, UFOs and the National Security State, both groundbreaking works which together provide the most factually complete and accessible narrative of the UFO subject available anywhere. He also co-authored a speculative book about the future, A.D. After Disclosure, the first ever analysis not only of how UFO secrecy might end, but of the all-important question, what happens next? Richard is also the author of UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, a fresh treatment of the entire subject, and in it he discusses the important sightings, the encounters, the politics, the cover-ups, the ancient aliens, the bizarre science disclosure, and offers advice on being both critical and open-minded in today's very confusing media world. More recently, Richard has written a series of booklets developed from select lectures on such topics as the idea of a secret space program and UFO secrecy and disclosure in the Trump era. Um, prior to his uh, interest in UFOs, Richard completed his graduate work at the University of Rochester, where he studied U.S. Cold War strategy European history, and international diplomacy. Before that, he studied at Alfred University and Oxford University and was a finalist for a Rhodes Scholarship. But in the past two decades, Richard has a dedicated student of all things related to UFOs, steadily expanding his interest within that topic from his initial focus on government documents and cover-up, and now his interests include it all, from the deepest aspects of the cover-up to contact and abduction, the science behind the phenomenon, how the phenomenon was affected world culture, his theory of the breakaway civilizations, and possible relationship of AI, artificial intelligence, and biotechnology to the UFO phenomenon, concluding, if not limited to, the implications of a world of secrecy, that is, the world after disclosure, when it all finally comes Apparent. Richard Dolan, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Boy, I have been chasing you for years. You know, the last time you and I were together, and this is kind of sensitive, but it was that extraordinary night in Amsterdam. You remember that? I do. And we all were at this conference, an amazing conference. It was back in 2011. I think, yeah, 2011. And um, 
I didn't know you were going to follow me on stage. I apologize. <laughs> I really didn't. No, they didn't tell me. You know, these people, the organizers were so well-meaning, and they literally went out of their – I mean, European hospitality is amazing. Robin and I had this most extraordinary set of adventures in uh, in Amsterdam around that conference. But tell everybody what she did at that late night when we all broke up. Because remember, we had it in two parts where we had kind of presentations, and then we broke for dinner or something. And then we oh, had yeah. long discussions, and it went late, and every restaurant – around where the conference was being held was closed. So what did Robin do? Robin organized, and uh, I don't know how much of the cooking she did. I think a lot. I know she a ran a, a meal, a banquet, I guess we could say, for quite a few of us. There was you, there was me, there was, uh, uh, I think Tim Good was there, am I right? And yep. also Peter Lavenda. Yep. Uh, we were the four speakers for that. And, you know, all a bunch of other folks were there. Who people of the and, conference yeah, Robin, attendees. Robin was the general. She took she, over. Oh, my. It was, she she took people. over this totally strange kitchen <clears throat> in the Netherlands. In the hotel. In the middle the of the night. Kitchen. And we had this incredible, you know, early morning breakfast. And, you know, Robin was kind of like the Pearl Mesta, <clears throat> hearkening back to a, a bygone age. Anyway, that was the last time you and I. We're physically together in the same room. Nine years. That's 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 amazing. Anyway, um, for a lot of people that that tune into the show all over the world, because we're in 190 some countries, and they tune in and tune out, and they listen to Club 19.5, and it's asynchronous. Who is Richard Dolan? How did Richard Dolan, you know, academic, get into the bizarre, out of, you know, normal reality? strangeness as as uh, linda calls it high strangeness of the whole ufo craziness how'd that no, start it's been, it's been an amazing journey richard i gosh 30 years ago listen i'm a 58 now so when i was in my 20s i was going on a fairly standard academic career path i thought uh, my field of study was always history i love history and um, I went through a lot of deep study of European history that includes German and Russian history. And then I switched over into U.S. diplomatic history, Cold War primarily, but uh, included a lot of American history and a lot of world history in general. And I was working on a doctoral dissertation in the early 1990s on uh, the presidency of Harry Truman and his Cold War strategy. Can't believe I look back on this. I think, wow, what a what a world that was for me. And I was writing a. Well, let me, well, let me stop you there. You know, that's very relevant. Do you know who Scarborough just wrote a big book about? Truman. Who who did? Joe Scarborough, MSNBC anchor, NBC, and all that. Political. He ran for Congress and was a yeah. uh, Florida congressman many years ago. Yeah. Anyway, he's got this book on Truman, which of course is the anchor for where everything goes cattywampus. Well, yeah, Truman is the foundation for really a lot of our modern modern presidency, even though he himself, uh, I think, had a lot of reservations about things toward the end of his life. But I was doing a, a lot of research on Truman circa 1950, just at the outbreak of the Korean War, and a lot of policy toward now, the Now, was this when you were in grad school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, back at the University of Rochester. And um, – it was going along pretty well. I had I wrote I, I never finished that dissertation, but I wrote about a hundred pages of it. And I was in a bookstore, 
in uh, I wish I could actually remember the year. If I really thought this through, I could, but I think 1993 or so. And I saw a copy of Tim Good's Above Top Secret ah. on a shelf. It was on a display. The book was still fairly now, at, at, five at, years old. At, at this point, you were totally into real word, you know, what is it Kissinger used to call real politique? You, oh, yeah. you weren't in, into UFOs. I Kissinger back you, then. you weren't into UFOs uh, at all. No, I wasn't a. I was never a diehard skeptic, though. I should really mention that I was. I was one of those people who was just on the fence and didn't really have any knowledge one way or the other. Mm, so mm. I didn't think that I qualified. You to knew the phenomenon existed. You knew there were arguments on both sides, and it was kind of the, one of these, you know, things where well, time will tell. I think so. I remember picking up. Uh, Tim Good's book, which is a big, fat classic, really. And I remember flipping through the pages thinking, wow, he's actually really trying to make a case here. So I, I, like, I knew this guy's name that he was writing about, and I knew that guy's name, and I'd read all about this department. And he's really looking into uh, something of like an official governmental interest from around the world in UFOs. That was the, the kind of tone of that book. And I had this – I don't know what, if it's an epiphany or what it was, but I just thought, wait, 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 wait. I'm tired of not knowing. I'm tired of having a big question mark hang over my head on this very interesting question because even in the early 90s, people had been talking for years about a UFO cover-up. I, I had heard that you know, the 1940s was supposedly a big time for all of this, and I was studying the 1940s and the 1950s, and I thought if there's anything at all to this, if there's any interest – so in 1947, the National Security Act, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. So if there was any interest by these players in flying saucers or UFOs, then the only question that I had at that moment was, why had I never read about this in any uh-huh. academic history book? How could that not be interesting? The question. Even if it was a mistake on their part, if they were interested in these flying saucers, I, I considered that that was noteworthy. And I, I – so I bought the book, and I just wanted to – answer for myself if this was um if this was a thing if this was a historical uh reality and i wasn't even honestly i got so slowly into the subject i was not even asking if ufos were real if aliens were real and i certainly didn't want to get into any of the weird stuff like abductions or uh crop circles or anything that was off off the beaten path i was just like all nuts and bolts you know 90s was the time when crop circles made their sudden appearance yeah, I was aware of them. Or I guess I must have been aware of them because I was thinking that I didn't want to study any of that. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I bought the book, and I, I was involved in what was then the early internet involved. Simply, I had an account, and I was looking at all the bulletin board groups. And there was um, one group called Alt Paranet UFO, and one was Alt Visitors Aliens. I used to go to those, and I, I kind of got immersed in this culture and long story short, after going through uh, books like Above Top Secret, and then I quickly uh, looked for bibliography of other relevant books, I became very persuaded early on that this was a topic of genuine concern to our national security leadership circa 1950. And I just thought, okay, I want to find out why there's this huge discrepancy. Why, why does this look real? And yet, why is it ignored? And with that, or uh, or why is it why is it by policymakers publicly ignored? 
yes, exactly. So they publicly ignored it, and it didn't take long before I became aware that there was at least a nice cache of documents that had been released through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, you know, this is the early 90s, and by this time, the the real heyday of uh, UFO FOIA documents was in the late 70s, really the Jimmy Carter years, maybe a little bit of the early Reagan years. Uh, a lot of a lot of stuff came out. So it was all available for me to read. And it was quite evident that there were uh, formally classified memos that were describing violations of sensitive airspace by objects that were not supposed to exist. They were disc-shaped. They moved in incredible ways uh, and all of that. And so I, I realized, okay, they're taking this seriously. They're dismissing it publicly. That's an obvious cover-up. Let's find out. And so really what my work was as a result of that is I wanted to, back then, I wanted to, as it were, mainstream the UFO subject into the broader context of America and then really world history. So uh, what I tried to do with UFOs and the National Security State, both of those two volumes, was to look at the important UFO sightings and history and events also to look at the important developments in research about UFOs, that is from independent researchers um, and like how they were figuring it out. And then also really looking at policy and trying to understand how all of those things wove together. So I, I tried to craft a narrative that moved the UFO story along in those years at the same time, really dealing with it from a cover-up angle and flavoring it, I guess we could say, with some broader historical trends at the same time. I mean, you know, the world was going through a lot of changes from the 1940s until the end of the century. So I tried to capture a lot of that as well. And that's really the story of those two books, which uh, particularly the first volume, which I completed in the year 2000, uh, took me about five years to write that book. And that really was my education in the UFO field. I started when I was researching that in 93, 94, at truly ground zero of knowledge of UFOs, I really didn't know much of anything. And so I got myself up to speed as much as I could. I read a couple of, probably a couple of hundred books that were, a lot of them were out of print. I had a, I had a buddy here in Rochester, New York, where I live, who was a used book dealer. And this is in the nineties before everything was on the web. And I remember he helped me hunt down a lot of books. I did a lot of interlibrary loan remember those, and just acquired as much of a library as I was able to. And I did a pretty good job. And then I, uh, for every book that I read, I, I really tried meticulously to uh, lift out, rip all of the factual data that I could and to organize that chronologically with proper citations and so forth. So I ended up creating a massive uh, chronology of the UFO subject that actually became the foundation of my of my historical narratives that's how I was able to write the books that I did I had I'd amassed a very uh, massive database uh, which I hand wrote all of it or hand typed it all so it, it actually helped me to reinforce the information that I was getting as well so it wasn't just like reading and then you know I was really writing out a lot and it uh, was very helpful for me so I became I think I became a quick study on it, and within five years, I had finished my first book, which that was a 500 – that wasn't my doctoral dissertation, but <laughs> a lot better than, than the dissertation would have been, and it was a 500-page book.
book, and I got that done in 2000. And after that, um, I became a known person in the UFO field. I guess one of the things that attracted me to your work is that your books are as big as mine, because <laughs> monuments they, grew to 500 and some. You know, my publisher said, "For God's sake, hold and write another book." Yeah, they're too long. I mean, the first one was 500. The second one was over 600 pages. And I thought, good grief, I'm just going to kill myself. So the After Disclosure, which I co-authored with a great, great guy, Bryce Sable, um, that was only 300 and change. But then I ended up doing UFOs for the 21st Century Mind a few years after that, and that's a little over 400. I just finished another book, actually, on um, – on aliens themselves, I've tried to do my own little analysis of it, and that's just a little over 200 pages, so that's a shorter book. But hmm. um, So they're all over the place. Now, most of your sourcing for this up until, shall we say, recently when you had established a reputation in the field was basically public sources, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Books, uh, out-of-print books, you know, Kehoe, the Lorenzens, Edward hmm. Ruppelt, and all the way through – uh, but see, you I looked at this data, which has been out there for decades. You looked at it through a completely different lens. This is what attracted me to your work in the beginning because I said, my God, this, this guy has foreign policy experience. He's got geopolitical experience. He's got real world grounding in the weirdness of human political dynamics. And he's looking at this through that lens. And your conclusion was – and these two volumes are – you know, they're they're definitely – you know. You, you can break your back if you pick them up wrongly. <laughs> well, my conclusions uh, – I try to be pretty cautious about my conclusions, particularly, particularly in the first of those volumes, but really in both of them. And the conclusion, however, was that there is absolutely a genuine inexplicable UFO phenomenon, inexplicable in any conventional sense, I should say. Um, and moreover, that the uh, – established authorities of our world, at least some of those established authorities know enough about this and are, are hiding what they know from the rest of us. So there's a cover up. So that was my conclusion. It's real. Someone is here. We are being lied to. And, um, and I guess that's it. I tried to document that as, as well as I was able to. Hmm. I'm going to go to some of the things that you said earlier, because I don't want to miss some of these key things. Um, at what point did people start calling you up? There's this thing called the Wilson leak we're going to talk about. It's, oh, yes, it's, it's hard to trust. You know, remember that old joke that, that Art Bell and I used to exchange on the internet? No one knows you're a dog. So anybody can make anything up on the internet. Look at, you know, the real world now and social media and the insanity of fake news and, no one knows who to trust, et cetera, which I think is by design. I think this is part of the fog of war. That's for a little later in the, in the evening here. But what about things like sources? Once you'd established your rep, what was the first guy or gal who called you up or emailed you or dropped you something physical in the mail and said, I got something you need to know? Um, th that hasn't been too many times. It's been a, a few times. And I guess what I would say is that rather than being given secret uh, documents and things like that, I had a number of interesting conversations with individuals who I think were, you know, well well plugged into certain certain things, and I would have quiet conversations with them. And you actually mentioned 
the uh, what I've called the Wilson leak or the um, Eric Davis notes. Uh, I was actually shown that full document in its entirety. Well, actually, no, not in its entirety. Uh, but I was shown about three pages of that document uh, back in 2006 by someone. Okay, for those people who have no idea, including partially me, what we're talking about, tell us who Wilson was, what the controversy is around him, uh, what he reports to have said, to whom, in other words, the whole story. Yeah, Yeah, Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson uh, was a, um, he's an admiral, and in the 1990s, U.S. Navy, that's right, had attained a a uh, very prominent role in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So in 1997, uh, he met – he was the vice deputy of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So mm. that's almost a position known as J2. He became – not long after that, he became chief of intelligence uh, for the Joint Chiefs. That's J2. And in April of 97, and all of this is not in dispute at all, uh, he met with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and astronaut Edgar Mitchell and a Navy commander named uh, Willard Miller and a few other people. They met – I think really Greer organized this, uh, but he brought Mitchell along, the astronaut. He brought Miller along, and they essentially talked to Wilson – and um, a couple of other high-level people there, actually. This is in 97 now. This is in April 97. This is when, when uh, Stephen Greer was really making the rounds in Washington trying oh, to get people. Oh, April. This was to... just after Hale-Bopp. Remember Hale-Bopp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This and and the whole weird, you know, it's, a, it's a, some kind of extraterrestrial spaceship and, right. and, and, and the cult that killed themselves. You know, 39 members yeah. in Southern Marshall California. Marshall Applewhite and uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. yeah. And Applewhite was CIA, one should mention. So, yeah, ETs right. This is right and after that. speculations were very much in the news on everybody's mind around this, this comet and particularly the weirdness. Well, 97 was a big year in general. That was the year of Philip Corso. Uh, that was the year of the 50th the, anniversary of Roswell. Like UFOs were. And the Phoenix Lights. Big. And Phoenix Lights. Absolutely. All of that was happening. Now, uh, anyway, so Greer gave a presentation of some sort to Wilson and basically said that there's a UFO reality, there's a cover-up, and his argument was that it's being run by rogue operatives who are essentially operating beyond the formal purview of the United States government. And uh, as a representative of the U.S. government, he, he was basically saying to Wilson, you know, you may want to look into this and so forth. And Wilson did look into this. Now, Wilson claims that he didn't. (laughs) But I will just tell you in 06, long before this came out, this is all very, very quiet in 06. So the meetings happened in 97, but it didn't publicly hit the fan until like a year or two ago. That's right. That's right. Although it was discussed very quietly among a lot of people. But not at the general level of social media and, you know, the Internet crazies and stuff that's gone on now. That's right. Um, you know, I so I'll just tell. So in o, in uh, 06, a scientist very close to this, and I have never given his name up, and I'm not going to unless unless he dies before I do, then I will. 
but uh, I promise he doesn't want me to, and I, I won't do it. But in 06, he showed me three pages of documents, of notes that were taken in 2002 by uh, what we now know as Dr. Eric Davis, of, uh, formerly of the National Institute of Discovery Science, a uh, colleague of Hal Puthoff, and a very well-known and very brilliant man. Hard-edge physicist. Yeah. Has who's looked right. into uh, faster than light technologies for NASA and stuff like that. Absolutely. And, and you know, very close. Didn't, didn't he do a book and, or a study on the idea of extraterrestrial colonies with, with the kind of analogy between terrestrial ocean colonies like the Polynesians and future interstellar colonies from Earth or by aliens in the galaxy? Actually, I don't know that, Richard. Maybe he did. Um, I'm not aware of that study by him. I will look it up and send it to you if I find it. That was what got me intrigued with him. Well, back in 06, when I was pages, I wasn't given the identity of Wilson, and I wasn't given the identity of Eric Davis. Um, But I was shown these notes that describe a conversation between a a scientist and a high-level government person about that government person's failed attempt to gain access to a black budget special access program that he ah. learned about that had to do with ET reverse engineering. Very similar to Greer's briefing of the CIA director, I forget his name. Woolsey. Woolsey, who claimed he yep. couldn't get through a, a, some kind of barrier, a wall. It was like there are two universes created around this. Yeah, I think that's actually uh, – I didn't know that Woolsey said that. Greer, oh yeah, but that wouldn't wouldn't shock me in the least. Because no, no, no. That's one of the hallmarks of why I know that Greer's telling the truth. Yeah, because if a bureaucrat ever says to you, "I don't know something," I mean, that's a huge red letter. Well, and on this matter, Greer's talked about this as much as I've talked about it, and he's absolutely telling the truth about this. Greer, Greer talked about this meeting years and years ago. Um, but anyway, um, I didn't know it was. Okay, day we're day coming day. up to a break here, so. You know, I'll wrap it up here. So essentially, no, what I was to, we can just continue on the on, on the other side of the break. That's the advantage of well, there long we go. form radio. Perfect. Yeah, I don't want to truncate. You know, this important stuff. Uh, what I want to do now, however, is to play you guys something because this is our. Uh, you know, we do nice bumpers here on the other side of uh, midnight. This is in the spirit of Halloween. This is the sounds of Saturn from the Cassini probe. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. NASA thought this was spooky. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics 
going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members, because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. Spooky, spooky, real music of the celestial spheres from NASA. And what these are is actual um, kind of transliterated audio sounds from particle and fields experiments and magnetometers carried on various spacecraft. And when they fly through these, particularly the outer planetary systems like Jupiter and Saturn, the magnetospheres are resonating with all kinds of frequencies of oscillating electromagnetic uh, radiation, charged particles being sloshed around in the magnetic fields of the interaction between the solar wind and the planetary fields and their trapped radiation belts. And you get all of these extraordinary sounds, which in the largest sense are absolutely real. If you could hear radio waves. Okay, so we're back. Richard? Mm -hmm. Yes. So you were in the middle of this really intriguing story about this Admiral Wilson, who was asked by Greer to basically take a look, serious look, and Wilson reports back, which he now, of course, denies, I looked and they wouldn't let me find anything, right? That's right. So why is that news? Oh, well, so... um... I'm trying to think where I left off here. Uh, as I said, I was shown the document in uh, 2006, and uh, it was very evident to me from the individual showing this to me, someone of a very, very high stature. And as I say, very close, very, very close to all of this entire thing. Uh, there was a, a line in there where Wilson was talking to Davis and he had learned, he said, I discovered that this, this technology that they were studying, this was not made by man, not by human hands. It was not of this earth. And uh, I've never forgotten that line. 
uh, when I was shown this, I was asked not – I couldn't take a picture of it. He said, look, I'm just showing this to you because it's important, and I think you need to know about it. And I said, great. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I'll uh, – well, what I ended up doing uh, after I was shown that was I ended up calling Thomas Wilson later that year at the later part of 2006, and um, he was not – interested in talking to me. I guess I could say that. I did speak to Edgar Mitchell, um, and I got through to Stephen Greer. All of those people confirmed that the meeting had taken place. Wilson eventually confirmed that the meeting with Greer took place, but he, I had to twist that out of him. And then he said, everything after that is just poppycock. I had, I had nothing to do with any anything else. But what we know is that he actually tried to raise some hell about this and ended up uh, getting some help in the DOD to look into the right sources to find basically breadcrumb trail for a number of SAP special access programs dealing with this subject. Of Talk about how the special access program works because most people think that Congress kind of monitors stuff. Uh-uh. <laughs> really? Well, <laughs> I yeah, said most people. Yeah. So what happened? You know, when you. Think I mean, the whole idea of the deep it, state, Richard. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole idea of the deep state basically has its origins in the suppression of UFO ET information by the U.S. government. I think in lo- there's absolutely that is a big part of it. I don't. I don't know if I would say it's the, the only part, but yes, UFO cover up. I've been saying this for years and years. Is something that students of the deep state, students of what I've called the national security state really tend to overlook. They don't they don't recognize how important it is. The UFO subject flying saucers back in the forties was very important and oh, one huge. Of drivers. It was of, front page uh, headlines in every major paper and local sure. I mean and, and there was conversation people would call each other, they'd send letters, you know, there was weekly rep- it was it was enormous culturally. Yeah, I mean flying saucers, uh and you know, there's a lot of other reasons to have massive government secrecy, not just UFOs. I mean, nuclear, uh, nuclear secrets, every, anything to do with the Russians, anything to do with geopolitics in the Cold War, anything to do uh, with a lot of those issues, and you know, the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project. But yes, UFOs definitely factor into it. Um, so since you came so at this, was I? Well, yeah. Well, since you uh, let me let me try oh, to special access start. programs. You want to say yeah? So special access programs. Uh, people should just think black budget. It's almost, you know, it's kind of interchangeable. These are uh, government spending. You know, according to law, the United States Congress has to authorize all government expenditures. But if, you know, here's the problem. If you're no longer really operating a republic and you're actually operating some kind of empire behemoth that's operating in that you need secrecy for because if you've got all these classified programs, you don't want those secrets to leak and you can't really even necessarily trust members of Congress not to leak these things. So what they ended up doing was an end run around the formal constitutional practices uh, and they really developed an entire infrastructure for this starting in the 1940s after World War II especially. And it, it just it's – So they basically got so, Congress to enact legislation. Was it in the 1947 1947- – National Security Act that Truman signed, where basically Congress said willingly, we cut ourselves off from knowing about some of this stuff. We don't want to know. We I want think plausible the deniability. Act of 1947 was a very major 
turning point. And there were you know, laws that were passed after that that just reinforced it, much like uh, the USA Patriot Act in 2001 was followed mm. by the National Defense Authorization Acts and all these others that followed up. And, and the same with the National Security Act of 1947. It was, it was a big turning point. And basically, long story short, is that Congress increasingly lost the ability to know every single thing that they were approving. And uh, a special access program is simply uh, it's a form of what we might call legal illegality by which a, a member of Congress might see a line item for something that they're approving, but they don't know anything about it um, because it's classified. Uh, and the, the knowledge of that might be known to two members of the Senate and you know two members of the House and maybe one or two other people, and that's it. So as most members of Congress are are completely in the dark. And even those those senators and those select members of the House are not briefed on any details either. They they're bare bones at the most. So that's the that's a which is where the term program. deep state came from because it's too deep for even the legally authorized representatives of the people to probe by design. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, we've had a series of political revolutions that have taken place through the 20th century and after the Second World War. Uh, the problem, though, is that they're revolutions, not, they're not formal revolutions where, you know, like in the old days, there would be a revolution, whether from the people or a revolution from above, and they'd make it pretty obvious and pretty in your face. In the United States, in the second half of the 20th century, we we were really good at keeping the facade of the old forms that were still there, but there were massive changes, of course, that went on below the surface. And one of those big changes was the fact that Congress essentially lost the ability to know all of the things that they were approving in terms of military, intelligence community, defense authorizations, and all of that. And so special access programs are uh, really the, the common name for these types of programs that are just beyond the purview of Congress. Uh, the black budget. Formally. Yeah, black budget, absolutely. Okay, so, so I mean, this, there's, this there's... program that Wilson found was a special access program. Okay. And it was being dominated by a private contractor. That was how they do it. Absolutely. It's all privatized. And you know why? He was able, was able to get a meeting with the hang on, hang on. what he called Let, the gatekeepers. Let's not let's not program. skip over some things. I discovered this when I was trying to track down Malin's background through uh, NASA. He's the guy who runs the cameras looking at Mars and found that his contract had been written through the private agency. So FOIA through NASA had no effect. He was in effect in a secret bubble under NASA that it could mm -hmm. not be penetrated by the legal FOIA process. Right. Yeah, I think that's actually – uh, pretty typical, the way that this whole thing works. Uh, you know, the law got passed in the 70s, strengthening freedom of information, and there was a lot of great things about that. Is that the church committee? As a result of that. Actually, um, it was actually Nixon doing that right before he – Oh, that's right. Yeah. He strengthened FOIA, uh, I think, in the summer of 74. FOIA existed in the 60s, but it didn't really have the teeth uh, that it got until 1974 – I mean, this is after Vietnam. Nixon's in the middle of Watergate. See, I've often wondered, Rich, sorry to interrupt, but I've often wondered, like, what's the point? If they really want to hide something, do you think a piece of paper and a letter 
is going to know. They're going to really keep it from us. So there's levels of FOIA revelations. There's just enough to make you think that you've got something, but not really the good stuff. Well, there's always a dynamic going on there. And I would say, I mean, I was uh, too young, really, in the 70s to see this firsthand. I was a teenager. But uh, what it seems to me is that there was there was political initiative from some people, particularly Senator Frank Church. You mentioned his name um, out of Idaho. He really was trying to investigate the intelligence community and had some hearings. He was totally undermined by Nelson Rockefeller and undermined by what we can call the deep state. But mm-hmm. um, that was the mood at the time. And you know, I would say that in the mid seventies. Well, we did find about the uh, find out about the dart guns and the effort to assassinate. Castro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like all, there were a lot of things that did come out that the CIA fought tooth and nail against them. They called them, you know, the family jewels and all mm-hmm. these these dark secrets. My God, the CIA is actually trying to assassinate people. Who knew? <laughs> all of this came out, and so so I think you know it can go back and forth. But I I do agree with your larger point, Richard, which is that. Look, the, the cards are really being held by the other side here, and and the guys who have this massive secrecy of bureaucracy, a bureau, bureaucracy of secrecy, they've got a lot of tools to work with to keep those secrets, and they're quite good at it. You know, just a few years after uh, Nick, Nixon strengthened FOIA, Jimmy Carter strengthened it further, uh, but then you know, a couple of years after that, NORAD, North American Air Defense, was exempted from mm. uh, most of the. Elements of, of FOIA and oh, do you remember you know, a book by Jacques, against all of that? You remember a book by Jacques Vallée called Fast Walkers? Yeah, I have a copy of that. Okay, for people that don't know what we're talking about, the NORAD people, you know, track with radars all kinds of amazing things going on around the Earth. The radars are very sensitive; they can reach out into space hundreds of thousands of miles beyond the moon and see things. And so you'd say, if the neighborhood is cluttered up with all kinds of interplanetary traffic. Spaceships, UFOs, whatever you want to call them. How come NORAD doesn't report them? Well, through ballet, I discovered that there literally is a computer algorithm which was written to eliminate all the stuff that's not what they're supposed to be looking at. And they call these things they get rid of fast walkers, meaning spacecraft moving thousands of miles per hour when aircraft are moving at hundreds and whatever, and spacecraft are in you know orbits yeah. and stuff like that. So there's a whole industry devoted in the Pentagon to basically throwing away publicly all that evidence. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, That's a really important point about radar in general that a lot of people may not be aware, which is that radar, you know, it doesn't, it's not just this raw thing that goes out there and spins around and catches signals. It's calibrated. And, um, and what Valet said, I think is that that's absolutely true. That's been confirmed many, many times. So that um, it's not even that the UFOs have stealth to radar. We create their stealth for them in a sense by weeding out yeah. these anomalies so that we're not supposed to see them. Which, of course, then raises the obvious question we're going to get to in more detail in the next hour or so. Are we dealing with a strictly extraterrestrial phenomenon, aliens, you know, greys, whatever, or are we dealing with something which is much more analogous, getting back to how you entered this this dimension, mm-hmm. of the Cold War and major and minor powers working out relationships and having spies and people on the ground in so-called foreign or enemy territory? In other words, 
do we have ETs among us and we don't even notice that they're programming computers to do certain things as part of policy because they're really family. They're not aliens. They're us. They're just, they don't just happen to live here sometimes. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get into this now, I'm happy to. Yeah. I yeah think it's a that, perfect segue. Um, yep. You know, I've been trying to create a scorecard. I feel like uh, I'm going to my first, you know, ball game and I don't know any of the players. So I'm trying to figure out like, what's actually going on on the ground. Uh, are, are there, is there one alien group? Are there multiple alien groups? How many uh, intelligence agencies and, you know, covert clandestine human agencies are aware of this and who's dealing with whom and are there alliances and so forth. And I mean, it's, it can get kind of confusing. A standard I, geopolitical approach to something that never until you started it ever had a serious geopolitical analysis before, at least in mm-hmm. public. I mean, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, I presume our government has done all this, but you're the first guy not as part of the deep state to do this from your background, which, again, I'm so amazed at what you were able to yeah. a- accomplish. Well, I don't know how much I've really accomplished, but I, I'll tell you what I think. You made it I, legitimate. You brought it. You dragged it kicking and screaming past the finish line of this will affect your real world. Pay attention. It's not just that airy-fairy stuff. And we'll get to the COVID-19 implications later in the show. Will do. Well, to be real quick about it, what I think is going on is that there is more than one truly alien group that is operating here. Okay. How are you defining aliens and ETs? Because I have a rule of thumb. Aliens are those out there whose biochemistry, DNA, et cetera, do not match. Mm -hmm. ETs can either be real aliens or members of the human genome, remember Neil Armstrong's famous words when he landed on the moon, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Our ET brethren are mankind in that you know, statement, and man is, of course, us. So there's a human dimension. We have relatives out there among the stars. Yeah, and I, when, I agree with this. And when I, you say, I fully agree with that. And when you say aliens and ETs, you've got to separate that one group both groups are ETs, but one group is really kith and kin, cousins, and they're the ones, I believe, you know, projecting from human nature, who have had the most influence and the most reasons to keep us down on the farm. They don't want us to know they're out there or, quote, here. That could be. They've, they've been here for a long time interacting. When you look at a lot of the uh, ancient – Stories that could qualify as UFO accounts or ET encounter. I mean, all of the people that they've encountered were human looking. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, but I do think that there are alien types that have come here relatively recently mm. in our history. I think uh, so when we talk about grays, uh, reptilian entities, mantid entities, I actually believe that all of those do exist. I, I think there's a strong enough case now from abductees and experiences that this is true. Uh, my sense is that they've all come here within the last probably century or so. And they're here for a specific reason. Uh, they're here to watch the, the greatest show in the quadrant, which is going on right here on Earth right now, mm. which is that we are about to leap into their world. See, this goes like back to my transformation. This goes back to my ritual calendar model. <clears throat> or to kind of misquote the Galileo wine commercial, make no wine before it's time. 
that all these decades that you and I have been laboring in these vineyards, continuing the Gallo metaphor really to extraordinary lengths, it has not been time for this to be disclosed. It's now time. And how do I know? How do I know? The New York Times for December 2017. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, okay, so uh, I, we're moving into a couple of different areas here. They're all important. Uh, Pick we up whichever thread you want to weave back into the general terrain. I think. I think that there is. There are a number of groups that are here because they know that we're about to enter what I've now been calling basically the fourth stage of humanity. Let's call it transhumanist stage. Or, call it a- or we're not going to make it. And the attraction is to see if we make the leap. I mean, how many times in the galaxy do you have cultures that are like ours that are poised on reconnecting with their ancient, ancient truth and history and there are factions trying to keep them again down on the farm and other factions trying to get it out there and the big question is what will the choice ultimately be it's impossible to keep us down on the farm any longer it's not possible not possible we're, we're going through too much of uh to an extraordinary technological revolution right now so the, the genie's out of the bottle ai is happening Strong AI is happening. There is no force other than annihilation that will stop that from, from continuing. Um, ditto with all of the other crazy tech we're developing, whether it's an integrated 5G, 24-7 surveillance network of planet Earth, where everyone will be surveilled uh, for the rest, really, for the rest of forever. Mm, uh, not so sure well as, about that. I think we can have – I think Musk is up to a very intriguing end run around all that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> you don't. Okay. No, I don't. Uh, his Neuralink idea is, is actually just more of the same. It's, yeah, but, it's but integration. Look, it doesn't mean we have to do it. Remember, geniuses are on ideas, culture, inevitable. society. It's, nothing's inevitable. It's happening. Remember Terminator. Remember when she woke up and had scr- scratched in the, in the table with the Bowie knife? There mm. is no fate. Richard, if you believe movie. in free will – and the yeah, idea that okay. you and I are trying to get people to pay attention to this stuff and realize it impacts directly their real world, nothing is inevitable. Okay, I guess. I don't think I agree with you in this case. Okay. I think that the train has left the station, and it's on a track, and it's going to end at a destination. Um, I mean, I just this is what I believe. There's too, there's too many confluences of too many powerful technological developments that – I, I don't see how to stop them. No one sees how to stop AI from continuing. We're already at the point now where you know, you've got leading scientists who do not understand how these uh, intelligences make their decisions. I think a year or two ago, there was some uh, AI guys over at Facebook doing uh, experiments, and they actually just made the news. They pulled the plug on their AI because – they were actually getting scared. They didn't understand. Oh, how my, 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 things my, were, my. Were, uh, <clears throat> Do you remember a very famous movie in the 50s? No, 60s called The Forbin Project. Colossus, no. The Forbin Project. I believe so. Oh, it's, you got to see it. You got to Google it and watch it some evening. It's, okay. a, it's exactly I'm, what we're talking about, except it I'm, was. I'm down with it. You know, it's called Colossus colon The Forbin Project. 
But what I just want to say here, I want to finish my point about why this train isn't stopping. So 5G. 5G will continue to be developed for a very simple reason. It has too many military and economic uh, uh, impacts, and it's too, it is too valuable. Yeah, but it may be limited biologically. If you wind up knocking off all your customers, that's a very poor business plan. They don't give it. They don't give a damn, Richard. Your customers You've will give it. a damn. It's like this whole thing about the virus for uh, vaccine for COVID nineteen. No one's going to take it. They have so muddled up the That's idea of vaccines. That's why nations are going to start forcing people. We're, no, they we're won't. Moving toward. I guarantee you, they will one not. Big they will not global. do that. They will. That was. That's the line that will not be crossed. Well, uh, we'll see. just have to see. Like I just saw Brazil, Australia is floating this, or I think. Um, one of the private, the Melbourne provinces, Victoria, they're all floating ideas about mandatory vaccinations. These are all trial balloons. You ask yourself, how long is it going to take before those mandatory vaccinations are implemented? It will not happen. It, that 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 is the that's it will a, happen that's in practice. A, that's the tripwire. That will. Look, be, I don't. I that, don't want it to happen. That will be the canary in the mine. All right. I'm, there are I'm limits. Moving. You know, we're moving toward global totalitarianism. Like it or not. And for you me, really it's pessimistic. Like, I don't like it. <laughs> so instead of giving in, what would your recommendations be to fight this? How do you fight it effectively? Well, we have to continue to fight it. I agree with this. Okay. And the way that the only way that you and I and other uh, some people can fight it is by talking about it. So we're doing that. Well, but, there's um, also see. I want in the next segment. I want to talk about private access to this extraordinary, you know, Star Trek type technology. Because that's an area that I've been quietly focusing on, and the real thing which has tethered most people to the planet and will forever is the economics of spaceflight. If you can totally cross-circuit, short-circuit, the dr- dramatic primitiveness of rockets and mm-hmm. replace them with real – I'll use the term – anti-gravity, yeah. um, it completely changes the equation because then – like Musk raised the other day, did, did you see his, his public statement that his proposed Mars cities will not be operating under planetary terrestrial law? Well, good luck with that, Elon. He's already <laughs> saying it. Why is he saying it in public unless he has a way of maybe enforcing it? It, sure it's a does. whole discussion. It's a, it's a huge discussion because, of course, it's the obvious thing. You're leaving Earth, 100 people on a starship to go with Musk to set on a, down on a new world. Yeah. How will you be governed? Right, so if, if he were able to do this, that's the big if, but let's say he were, uh, the amount of freedom that exists there would last about as long as freedom that lasted on the Internet. So you might give it 20 years. And then, you know, eventually – the long arm of the law comes in there, and they will they will assert their dominance, guaranteed. I've seen so many of those, you know, films and 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 books and whatever. Isaac wrote this wonderful book, Robert Heinlein, the most famous book about all this that he ever ever wrote. Remember that one? The moon Stranger is in a, a strange land. No, the moon is a harsh mistress. Ah, remember that? I read that. You haven't read that? Yeah. One of my gaps. Okay, add it to your list. The moon is a harsh mistress. I guarantee you it will make you smile and give you hope. Good. <laughs> we can all use that. I, I could certainly. Okay, look, it is the uh, – I've got to check my clock. It's the bottom of the hour. Let us kind of uh, pause here, 
My guest this morning is uh, Richard Dolan. I've been looking forward to this interview for many, many, many years. And if you think it's interesting so far, wait till you hear what we're going to talk about next. This is Spooky Sounds Across the Solar System for Halloween this Saturday evening here in the Land of Enchantment, October 31. The doorway between hyperspace is opening. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if, in fact, um, let me make sure I don't let this run on. There we are. I mean, we have so many intriguing, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, snippets of, of data from the solar system that, in fact, do make it sound like, uh, uh, you know, you're listening to some kind of other dimensional um, aspect of NASA's discoveries. In fact, the other day, and I'm going to talk about this probably at some length uh, over the next uh, week or so, uh, NASA's published a paper where they're actually revealing some extraordinary developments about the sun that do not have uh, grounding in any current theory. The sun, surprisingly, in their model, are, is doing something that it literally cannot do in the um, – what's the word I'm looking for? The gamma ray part of the spectrum. So you're going to want to pay attention to that. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Back everyone to the other side of midnight for this Halloween, October 31, when the veil between dimensions thins and anything can happen. So, Richard, where were we? Oh man, we were we were bouncing around. That's what the show does. <laughs> we bounce around. Yes, following as my grandmother used to say. Sometimes, um, you know, doing this is like trying to uh, run a a sack race with a three-legged heifer never winds up going where you want. Anyway, She's so wise lady, we've got we've got insiders who are basically saying that uh, there there is this bifurcation, two realities, two separate worlds, where 
the UFO reality is kind of quarantined behind an impregnable shield. And various people in our world on planet Earth, as opposed to alternate Earth 2, try to penetrate that shield. And all they do is come back with, I, despite my you know, experience and my status and my classifications and my you know, credentials and my security clearances, I could not find out anything what the blank is going on, right? Right. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, we've made in the last three years a little bit of progress. It's definitely true. Like, you know, you mentioned the New York Times coverage of uh, of the ATIP program. And uh, exactly. Uh, let's splash forward the film then to December 2017, New York Times Above the fold says, in effect, hey, guys, UFOs are real, and the U.S. government is showing you, backing this up. How did we get to that point? Be very specific and detailed. What the hell's going on with all these players and private agencies and rock stars and secret CIA guys that appear to not really be who they claim to be? In other words, is this disclosure or a huge Trump – Talk up. Well, I don't think Trump has uh, Donald Trump has anything to do with this. I think that okay. uh, what we're looking at is a faction of people with intelligence and defense backgrounds who have coalesced around this issue. And you know, we uh, you mentioned rock stars who are talking about Tom DeLonge and the organization to the Stars Academy, TTSA. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if anyone knows the full, complete, deep story about how he really got going into this. But he clearly made connections with some powerful people who um, decided to to use him to promote this this issue. And you know, by the time you're in the latter half of 2016, he's got. Folks like Putoff, he's got folks like Jim Semivan and um, and other and Christopher Mellon, who's very very important. And then they added Lou Elizondo toward the end. There, they did their press conference in October of 2017. Hmm. Uh, did I say 26? I should have said 2017. So they did their press conference in 2017, and that is absolutely the spark that enabled the New York Times to publish what they did because the fact was when these guys did their press conference and they're talking about the reality of UFOs, that was actually a very powerful thing. I mean, they screwed up a few things. They had an image of a Mylar balloon that was supposed to be a UFO and yeah, okay, we can acknowledge all that, but they actually were a a pretty impressive group of guys willing to go on stage to talk about the reality of this. And before there was a New York Times article, this was a very major statement at the time, and I think it was pretty evident that it wasn't going to go away. Uh, journalist Leslie Kane, who I know you know pretty well and have a lot of respect for Leslie, she's genuinely engaged and interested in this issue. Was she with the On Boston Globe at one point? I beg your pardon. Was what? she with the Boston Globe at one point? Yeah, she wrote. She wrote for the Boston Globe. Okay. And, she may have written for other people. She she did um, for other organizations. She did a very good piece back then on the Cometa uh, report out of France in the 1990s for the Boston Globe, as I recall. Which was and an listen, official French government scientific study of the realities of UFOs. Yes, that's right. That's right. See, for a lot of people that don't right. follow this, we got to 
not everyone knows, right? I'm getting too into the weeds here. But the fact was that Leslie is not just interested in the UFO subject. She is a legitimate, bona fide, mainstream establishment journalist. And and she's been able to get, you know, gigs for establishment (laughs) newspapers. So she was able to. Who uses her mainstream journalistic skills to probe in an area that no one's supposed to ever look at? And and it was a real. They had to fight. Uh, her Ralph and Ralph Blumenthal primarily had to fight with the New York Times in a lot of a lot of ways to get them to cover this story, but they were able to do it. And so that's how that that whole thing happened. Um, and since and I mean that article, by the way, actually there's two articles that they published on December uh, December 16th, I think 2017. Um, they're good articles. I mean, in the sense that they are. They've got legitimate information in there, and it's the New York Times, which is has engaged in so much uh, – you mentioned deep state mm-hmm. <laughs> misinformation, disinformation for so long. Which is why you pay attention when this subject comes up – this is why you pay attention when this subject comes up in the gray lady above the fold. It, 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 to me, as soon as I saw that, I said, okay, disclosure, however weird it's going to be, has begun. This is day one. Well – it ha- it's begun and now it is. It seems stalled, as from my perspective. Um, they got they got a couple of good stories out. Uh, we didn't see the rest of the world saying, "Oh wow, UFOs are absolutely real now." I mean, a lot of people did say that, but a lot of people weren't saying that, and no one in the political establishment was saying that, and no one in the Defense Department was saying that either, actually. So it, it really took a while. Another year went by. Oh, I, I assumed it would take a while, but when you, when you have a start, look, there's such inertia built up around this. You've had the CIA and the other intelligence agencies lying to us for you know seventy plus years that this mm-hmm. is all nonsense, and then you're not going to expect one New York Times story to break the dam. But it made it it made it politically possible to talk about it. Yes, of course, it made a, it's we've seen a sea change in the culture in in certain ways, absolutely. Yep. And what I was about to say is that the U.S. Navy, which Clearly, there is a faction connected with the U.S. Navy that because there's always been factions. You know, there's always been a pro-disclosure faction. There's always been a pro-secrecy faction. It's never been any different, and that's the case what we have now. So what you see is that these folks at TTSA have their allies and they have their enemies within the within the bureaucratic structure of the of the government, and so they were able to get some statements. From the Navy every now and then, and they then they get opposite statements from Navy. Well, the thing that caught my attention, water on it. The thing that caught my attention was back in 2017, the Times publishes, you know, because they get websites and links and all that. This gun camera footage, this infrared video, the FLIR stuff, but it did not come out officially. It was like a leak through the Two to Stars Foundation or something. I don't sort of. It was it was actually Lou Elizondo was a and Chris Mellon. Uh, these these are the two guys who really were key. They were able, and everything that I've picked up on this tells me that they every day everything they did was legal, but it was very much on the DL on the mm-hmm. down low. Mm-hmm. And they were able to get those three videos. There were three of them, right? Declassified. Okay, and, that was twenty seventeen. They did it by lowballing the whole UFO element of it. They they didn't really emphasize. That these are UFO videos per se, and they were able to get it. So they were declassified to, I think it was to Elizondo, and through him, 
they were able to show that. And so those were legit. But even so, they were they were still orphans from the Navy for exactly. a while. Exactly. And then three years later, as this spring, COVID-19 is bursting everybody's dam, the Navy comes out and officially sanctifies the footage as real Navy Pentagon gun camera footage. That's like, right. Like what? Finally. Well, they, there's really no way they could back out of it. I mean, it was one of the. But it was the timing. It's the timing. It's the timing. Fifty-one. Same thing. Remember, I think there's a UFO connection to COVID-19, as we'll get through in the next uh, 90 minutes. For the Navy, in the middle of a national discussion on a pandemic, to suddenly come out and say, "Hey, psst, psst, guys, over here, this UFO stuff is real." To me, looks like a coordinated effort by some group, some faction, to give a context to what was going on pandemically. Well, you'll have to explain that to me a little bit more. I think, you know, the, one of the things I would say about uh, the fact that we've had some of these little bombs drop, these disclosure bombs dropping, um, particularly during the pandemic time, is that they are essentially being overlooked, you know, by the rest of the world because everyone's still worked up over COVID and the lockdowns and uh, everything concerned with that. You're not really hearing a lot about the UFO mm. situation as much, it seems to me. So it's, it, it actually, if you, if someone's interested in dropping little disclosure bombs, I was wondering like, this might not be the worst time to do it. There's the, the world's just going out of its mind with everything. We're in an upside down world. And so, really, you think? That- <laughs> I've been saying this is the most unique time in planetary history for the last twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty years, which you may remember yes. or you know kind of associate with the precessional cycle, which in our model modulates the physics, and you can only reveal this stuff on Earth when the light bulb is ready to change. In other words, if consciousness is connected to this ratcheting cyclic you know procession of the physics then there are only certain times going back uh, biblically to you know christ talking about you know strewing seed on barren ground if you try to tell the truth too early nobody's going to believe it because they can't they're basically not there but if you wait till the physics is right and you tell the same truth then it will take root mixing our metaphors madly yeah i, I don't disagree with that um, I think that there's a lot of things going on here. I mean, we're, we've gotten to a point in our history as a species, as a civilization, where we are, we are now rapidly getting to a point where we are going to be able to understand the science and the physics of a lot of this in a way that we could never imagine. And I think even we already the, do. Even 100 years ago, we could I, I think if we already do, it's just been, you know, it's, it's black budget. It's totally sealed off. We live in a fake reality where physics is limited by Einstein, the speed of light, you know, the, the faster well, than light. Can... I, I agree with you there as well, but, but we're now at a point where the rest of the world, it's like we're getting to a point where it's really going to be harder and harder to deny. And this is why Richard, if you gave me enough money, and if, if you gave me enough money, it's not that much. It's a few million. I could tonight create a viable space drive that would take a camera from Earth, Pluto, in weeks, not a decade, and then go into orbit 
and photographing close up the stunning architecture which is lying all over the bitterly cold frozen nitrogen snows of Pluto's surface. Mm-hmm. In the hands of private individuals, that kind of technology is going to revolutionize who we know we are instantly, like in, in years, a couple of years, because it doesn't have to be developed. It all exists, just has to be put together. And it's coming out in the open literature. Like the other day, I'll give you a hint. The other day, there was a major breakthrough on what are called sheets of graphene. You know what graphene sheets are? Um, I, not scientifically. I've carbon it, atoms, for some reason. Very, love, very powerful, very strong. Carbon atoms, for some reason, love to form these bizarre geometric structures. Because, of course, it's the torsion field. And one set of structures they form is a literally one atomic layer sheet of endless hexagons. They arrange themselves into a hexagonal pattern, which is a double tetrahedral pattern in three dimensions. What they've now discovered is if you take two sheets of graphene and you put them one over the other, and then you deliberately misalign the top sheet by 1.1 degrees, you suddenly in the graphene get superconductivity. And oh, fascinating. There, there are aspects that look like yeah. it might be superconductivity at room temperatures. One of the space drives that I'm working with, working on, requires controllable superconductivity. This breakthrough alone, because making, uh, you know, um, these sheets is is incredibly trivial and there's no expense at all. Graphene is an amazing material. And that 1.1 degrees, you know why that's important? Because 1.1 is what? It's 11, right? Mm -hmm. Symbolically, it's part of an equation, which I call the 19.5 equation, because both 19.5, 33, and 11 are all part of this hyperdimensional conversation. It's no accident that it's tuned to 1.1 degrees. Because the 360-degree system is not random, it's hyperdimensional, which goes way back in planetary history as to who gave us this information or what culture developed it and then it got forgotten and rediscovered millennia later, et cetera, et cetera. Are you of the opinion that we originated, Richard, here on planet Earth and evolved through you know, Darwinian evolution? Or are you of the opinion that our background is much more extraordinarily complicated, particularly with ET relatives and ancestors? Okay, well, I can see that's a bit of a loaded question, Richard. But I will... <laughs> really? <laughs> you can always say no. Uh, I'm a believer in Darwinian evolution. Okay. But I also believe that we've probably been tweaked along tinkered the way. With. Yeah, I like the term tinkered with. I think so. And um, there's a couple of reasons that I would I actually do believe that. But yes, I think that, I mean, ultimately, human beings are a product of this world. We evolved here. We are a primate. We are a hominid. And um, I would say that I consider that a very good argument. However, I would also – I believe that there's a chance that sometime around, let's say, 40, 45,000 years ago, um, we were genetically modified. And, and uh, this is something I looked into a bit. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So you we, think it was that late? Yes. 
Because remember, in Monuments, I, I laid out the scenario that it was 250,000 years ago, a quarter of a million years. That that humans were genetically modified? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. But I, they were also moved around. I don't know of that evidence. Oh, I think you have to read Monuments again. It's in Monuments. You'll, you'll see it in one of those five iterations where my publisher finally said, for God's sake, hold it and write another damn book. <laughs> Which we are well, doing. I mean, for me, I'm looking at uh, evidence in terms of archaeology and genetics, and so, so I don't know what evidence there would be. Well, let me give you. Let me give you. you know, let me, all right. Thousand years ago. Here, here is our model, and I'll lay it out, and everybody can kind of have fun with it. Someone came here. I mean, this is really a big model. Modified the solar system, literally moving planets around. You can do that with torsion field physics. You know, gravity is not implacable. You can modify it. You can modulate it, whatever. That's how space drives ultimately work. And then you put together a solar system which is conducive to the development of intelligent life. And then something went radically wrong. And there's been an AD and BC to solar system history where entire planets, one in particular, was destroyed. A huge war millions of years ago, 66 million years ago. And there's been an awful lot of human rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall development ever since, with the last phase of this happening about a quarter of a million years ago, where Homo erectus was literally kidnapped, taken to Mars. This is where Sidonia comes in, modified, lived there a quarter million years, and only returned back to Earth relatively recently, circa 35,000 to 40,000 years ago. Well, you and I live in completely different intellectual universes, sir. <laughs> well, that's why I thought it would be useful to kind of acquaint you with the idea. Because again, no model is, yeah. is, is useful unless it's testable. And there's a million ways that we can and are actually now testing this model. Well, and Have at it. And I would say do test it. And if you end up with inf- interesting information, I would be quite interested. Okay. All right, we've got about 10 minutes to the uh, top of the hour. Um, I want to save the breakaway conversation for the next hour because I think it needs a, a, a kind of runway to develop. Let's, let's go back to the December 17th breakthrough because I now think based on the ritual calendar, you know, the make no wine before it's time, that December 17 was the beginning of this process. And I know there are a number of people in the UFO community who have been terrified, I mean, really, quaking in their beds, and I'm not being hyperbolic on this, that Trump will circumvent all this and to save his administration will announce the reality of what's out there. What do you think? That would be cool. I'd love for him to do it. So would I. But yeah, one of I our mutual friends is terrified that he will happen. this will happen, and it's because he's terrified of Trump. My view is – that regardless of Donald Trump's personal persuasion, this is so much bigger and so much more transcendent that the field itself will rapidly overtake any attempts at managing the birth once the birth is made official. And who better than the guy who doesn't think inside the box ever than Trump? I mean, I've thought for years that his – That's the thing about him. His, his know, people, role was uh, supposed to do this. Well, he's got only three days. He's got to do it in the next three days. Yeah, I – And I don't see it. Will happen. Of course not. Well, nothing's of course. 
Uh, I think I know who our mutual friend is that you're referring to, and uh, <laughs> I, I love him like a brother. So do I. But 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 uh, I have argued with him over over disclosure issues for as long as I've known him, and we've argued about politics, by the way, for as long as I've known him, and we have very different views on pretty much anything that I can imagine. Uh, be that as may, I, I respect and like him and um, appreciate him. So, likewise, I, I'm just no, so I think fascinated. He's totally, totally wrong. Like he, he uh, are, can we mention this? I mean, this is no. I'm just not mentioning his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But he's been on the air. He's volubly, you know, laid out his position. So it's not really a secret. I just yeah, not. He's, he's Steve Bassett. Yeah, he's exactly. My friend Steve. and I, and I yeah. love Steve. Yeah. Um, like he was arguing back in 2016 that that um, Barack Obama was going to be the disclosure president. Well, there were there were indications. There were a lot of interesting clues, but see, with politics, unlike Never the hard scientists, you can, you can always be abrogated by someone who says we're not going to do it now. Political projection forecasting is insane, insanely complicated. You know, which is why when people confuse my political prognostications with the other stuff we work on. They continually say, oh, well, Hoagland, you're, you, know, you were wrong here or wrong there. And I'm trying to remember which one that I was wrong about. I did feel that Obama was building up. I can show you a, a, a case study where he was setting it up and he was told basically not to. And everything changed. Well, Meaning it wasn't yeah, time. Mean, Obama probably wanted to do a number of things, and because he was a complete puppet of the national security people and financial Wall Street people around him, of course he didn't do anything like that. He just did what they told him to do. Yeah, but he That's wanted what every to. single president we've had since Kennedy has done because until Trump, actually. Again, it's not in my my model. It's not part of a president wanting to do it. They can't do it until the clock rings midnight. It's bound by this physics. It's got to be done on the calendar, and we're now in the calendar. Okay. Possibly. So if that model it, is it could true. Be, we could be in for a long wait. I don't think so. No, 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 because the physics, the physics is really, you know, it's, it's, you know my, my cliche about this is you can only surf when surf is up. If you miss the window, you got to wait a very long time till this window occurs again. So let's go to the real world politics. The thing that made me very, shall we say, comforted this model was accurate was suddenly after the New York Times, regardless of what did not appear right away, we began to hear rumors that there were background briefings of high-level congressmen and senators on the mm -hmm. Hill on something that nobody ever wants to talk about, UFOs. And then we had yeah, legislation. Privately, they're all into it. But then we had legislation, and there's one Florida senator, very prominent, Rubio, who actually started talking publicly, you know, like, like Emily Dickinson, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, that there's a much higher level interest in this than has been, shall we say, admitted to in public. So yeah, I don't think right. this is a long fuse at all. I think the next two years are going to show stunning developments depending upon the results of this election. Well, here's, here's the problem, though, with it. Okay, I, I agree with you up to a point. There's been some momentum on, on UAP. They're calling them UAP. They don't want to use the word UFO. Yeah, of course. But, but the problem is… Unidentified how, how, aerial phenomena. 
how far can they actually go, right? Uh, so here's where they've gone so far. Made the admission that there are these things that are out there and we don't know what they are. Like this is their new convenient fiction here. Who made the tic-tac-toe? Could it be the Russians? BS, of course not the Russians. Chinese, obviously not. But you have this pretend, this little game of pretend to think, oh, well, maybe one of our adversaries, or maybe we've made it. Yeah, you know, and if they had this, they'd be mopping the floor with us on next Tuesday. Yeah. You know. and, and in 2004, just going into the history of it, uh, China, absolutely zero chance, and Russia, zero chance. Russia in 2004, not a chance. Uh, and so what, what I'm saying is that we're at a point right now where we've got this admission that, yeah, there is these things out there. We don't know what they're at. So there's no of we're, – we're on the hairs on the edge of admitting possibly that they're crash retrievals. Now that would be important because if you well, wait, wait, wait. didn't in the same time frame didn't Bigelow suddenly come out and talk about how there was a whole warehouse full of parts of UFOs that had been retrieved over the previous decades as part well, of that we, original Yeah, but Bigelow's not a government official. So Bigelow No, but I, I I thought this quasi official government group, this Pentagon group, said that they were doing crash retrievals and storing the materials in this Bigelow warehouse. That was well, the touch I, point. Th that actually was in the initial New York Times piece yeah. in 2017. They talked about you know metal alloys rather than metamaterials. And yes, so we've known since then that Bigelow apparently has access uh, – has possession of these things, and some of those things are now uh, being studied. Okay. Uh, there's the U.S. Army's got a program called the Krata Program, and TTSA took this very interesting artifact that Hal Putoff was talking about. Uh, they don't know how this thing was made, and it, it's quite interesting. It's got interesting properties. Mm. There are I'll other tell you what, hold it well. there. <clears throat> We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Richard Dolan. We're discussing the point at which in the next few months – or maybe next few years, this entire subject is going to emerge from the darkness of the cover-up of the last three quarters of a century into the light of, of what? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. The breakaways lie straight ahead. Don't touch that dial. Other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
Talk Radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone to the other side of midnight you will of course remember this uh, Harry Lubin soundtrack to the original One Step Beyond with John Newland just kind of seemed appropriate because I'm now going to take you with Richard Dolan One Step Beyond Richard that's the segue the opening the intro to do we really have enemies in the solar system who left Earth on anti-gravity technology in the 1940s? And if so, what do we call them? Okay. Oh, we're good? Yep. So you're asking me if... if uh... The whole breakaway civilization conversation, where did that come from? What gave you the idea that maybe there was a terrestrial faction that had mastered some of these amazing technologies and it was being kept secret by uh, terrestrial governments that simply did not want to admit that any of this could be going on. Yeah. Um, probably the real key was reading Arnold Toynbee, <laughs> great historian. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I was a big fan of him. He, Toynbee wrote a, uh, what's called a study of civilizations or study of civiliz- yeah, civilizations, plural. And what he tried to, he's what they used to call a meta historian. So professional academic historians these days, like they get into the tiny little details and they'll do, you know, an entire book on a very, very restricted subject. Toynbee was the opposite. He would, he really was a big picture guy, one of the ultimate big picture historians writing about a century ago. And uh, what he did is he characterized what is it that constitutes a civilization. And he tried to identify all of the civilizations that have ever existed on on planet earth uh it's kind of an interesting thing they did and he categorized them and he had certain societies that were almost at the level of civilization as he defined it and so forth so all very interesting and um so i was quite familiar with the way he looked at what is it that makes a civilization but then looking at the ufo situation and looking at it in the context of the cold war especially the united states and the soviet union um you know, I became quite aware that the infrastructures – so for example, the infrastructure of the Soviet Union, their scientific world was very – in some ways really dominated by a, a, you know, a ridiculous ideology. A lot of Soviet science had to follow ideological dictates, and we don't need to get into the details. But then the other thing about Soviet science, of course – is that they classified a lot of their research just as the United States classified its research. So you have these two secret infrastructures that are not necessarily sharing. What I realized is that over the last 
500 years or so, we've been moving toward a single global civilization, really. It's just been continuing ever since. Well, wait, wait, wait. Hasn't, thought, hasn't the standard UFO discussion gone something like, well, they won't make open public contact with us until we become one united planet? They don't want to deal with you know 15 different or 20,000 different nations. And the model, of course, was uh, uh, that incredibly important 1950s film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, where Klaatu says to the, the uh, U.S. ambassador, no, I don't want to meet with your president. I want to meet with every head of state on planet Earth. So has not one of the hallmarks of the whole UFO field been we need to get together, otherwise we're always going to be you know, kept down on the farm? Okay, so I, I wasn't getting to that point yet, but fine. I mean, I just wanted to explain how is it that I came to an idea of a breakaway civilization. Um, I agree. I mean, really, with a, a, the government you're referring to, it's basically we're going to see a global totalitarianism, and and that will make us see, part again, of the collective community. I don't agree with you. It's not inevitable. There is no fate. Okay, good, wonderful. So, as far I don't agree with this, but okay. Um, That'll be I, a whole other program. We can we can argue about the idea about. of a breakaway civilization is simply. I'm going to too much detail here. No, no, Essentially, no, no, not at all. Myself, no, 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 no. Is it possible? Details important. Have really it? important because remember, for most folks, they're going to think we're all nuts to talk about this. So give as much detail as required. We have an hour. Yeah. Uh, it was clear to me that there were classified scientific infrastructures that already existed that we know about. So the, the Russians, the Americans. Probably other other nations as well, and I, I asked myself, is it possible for you know then throw in UFO tech, throw in crash retrievals of of, of objects that are studied quietly in secrecy? Real spaceships, not, not rockets. Yeah, like Roswell and and many other crash retrievals, which I do believe have occurred. Mm-hmm. And so, if you've got those in absolute secrecy. And you've got your genius level scientists looking at them in the military and in private industry. And if uh, one or more of them come up with some nifty ideas, some of them could be real money makers, and you might have a good ground floor investment opportunity there. But some of those ideas might be so important, so valuable, so radical that they can't be segued to the public. If someone comes up with an idea that replaces petroleum as a source of energy, for example, or if someone comes up with a propulsion system, some version of electrogravitics or some other system that allows for a genuine flying saucer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that also, that's a bridge too far. There's just no way that would be allowed. Not in the context of the 1950s, 1960s, 19, not any, because it's too disruptive. And so what would happen yeah, – wait, 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 Hang on, hang on. I, you, you can say that about any time in history. The controllers have always lost. See, this is why your negative projections I don't think are really valid because Uh history always surprises us, particularly if the 2% get activated because 98% never do anything. It's 2% that mastermind all the revolution. Look at the Well, to be fair, I really haven't had an opportunity to give my full view of of how things are going down. Um, And I do think that in the very long term, you know, always opportunity for, for dynamic change. But we're, we're going through a fundamental civilizational change now, and it's, I, I see it as inevitable. Um, but that that's also opens the door for some form of disclosure. I mean, managed, pre, pre, 
pre-digested disclosure for the rest <laughs> of us. Um, anyway, the idea of a breakaway, just real quickly, is if you have a classified world that has made a breakthrough in propulsion, for example, or energy, what I envisioned – this is over a decade ago when I was thinking about this – was that their bosses would say, great idea. We're just going to not bring that into the uh, private industry, but we're going to continue to develop it. We're going to classify all the results, and we're going to build this secretly on our own because we want we want our own infrastructure to be able to deal with whether it's these ETs or we don't want to screw with the petroleum industry or the global financial sector because all of this would be affected. Have you read any of Dr. Paul LaViolette's work? Yeah. So you're aware that he basically is 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 confirming your model that for the last several decades there has been a secret black ops project, several into development of anti gravity, so called free energy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That it's yeah, all, there's no question that it's there's all there on the shelf. But it didn't come from ETs, it came from our own development projects, complemented and confirmed by comparisons with ET technology. Yeah. I, I agree with that totally. Okay. I would say the exact same thing. I would never say that we just copy. We, I don't think we're able to copy everything that, that they build in the first place. But the key is like you don't have to have a full, complete understanding to know that something is possible. So when they, they get an object that can hover in, and then instantly accelerate or zigzag or whatever, like the scientists who look at this realize they have a new set of questions. It's not, is it possible? It's how is it possible? And so that sets them on a path and they make breakthroughs. So I think that's exactly how it works. Like there's human ingenuity always uh, spurred on, given a boost, we might say, by an encounter with something much more exotic. Yeah, I think that's that's probably right. So we have our own ver- – this is what the story of the ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicle, I think is about from 1988, which is – this is a story that I happen to believe in which there was an air show uh, in California, and you've got uh, very high-level people there. And on one side of this big hangar are three hovering flying saucers <laughs> and a four-star general giving – I don't know if you know this story. It's been out Oh, no, I know the story. I'm just wondering how you got an invitation to that one. Oh, I know, right? Um, and he's giving a lecture on and talking about them as ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles. The man who was, was standing there was named uh, Brad Sorensen. I have not spoken to Brad Sorensen. He doesn't seem to be particularly engaged, uh, wa- wanting to talk to people. But I know a number of individuals who did interview him back in the day. And I think the story is dead on true. And so we've been trying to replicate these things for a while, and we used – our own versions of technology when that's that's available to us and we i will presume we use well are you familiar with that old that that old story about arts parts remember Uh, arts parts sure art was delivered from a listener some pieces of something that he then had analyzed and it turned out to be cladded materials bismuth yeah, you're talking about the – this is what Linda Moulton Howe. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They it's, only, it's called the, the metamaterial. Yeah, the only way you could make that really at any scale would be in zero gravity, which right there says okay. somebody upstairs you know, let something fall or we picked up something that could not be made on Earth. Cause yeah, and, and from what I 
I mean, I listened to uh, Putoff's lecture about this. He gave one at SSC Society for Scientific Exploration back in 2018. It's on Vimeo. It's very interesting. Mm. I, I've talked with him about this as well. And essentially what he's saying is that the, the layers of bismuth and magnesium primarily are so fine. They're so thin that how, how to get them to bond and how to get them in exactly the formation that they they appear like no one's aware of any company that could do this or any organization that could be here on earth and for a long time they didn't even know what this thing could be for he later described it as an outstanding wave guide for uh high frequency electromagnetic radiation i think terahertz range and that gets you into anti-gravity i guess um this is a little bit beyond my science but this is where eric davis comes in this is where putoff comes Mm -hmm. in They, they are setting so um it looks like this is a an artifact piece that a we don't know how it was made and we didn't know what it was for for the longest time but now they are theorizing that that's what this could be for it's actually and then i listened to a interesting take by jack sarfati about this a couple of years ago and he and davis argue with each other all the time but sarfati had an interesting idea to me tell people who jack sarfati is come on <laughs> sarfati is one of the original uh, uh, i guess consciousness physicists isn't that right? Back in the mm-hmm. early, he's like a hippie mm-hmm. physicist. Of yes, the 70s. yes. Hey, uh, Ashbury, San Francisco, Ooh, genius um, level. You know, yeah, exactly. His, his ego makes Trumps look like a like a house mouse. He's an interesting guy, but for sure. But he gave a very uh, interesting series of interviews on YouTube just a little over a year ago, where he's talking about the physics of the Tic Tac UFO, and he's really talking about the physics of the metamaterial. Mm-hmm. And his theory is that. You know, we're looking for propulsion through engines, you know, with these UFOs. And he's saying, I don't know if it works like that. He's looking at it through the skin of the craft. Exactly. You want something like a fish that slips through the torsion field and kind of pulls itself by its own bootstraps. It's so obvious what this technology needs to do. He, He theorized that the skin of the craft is somehow able to slow down the speed of light, which changes the physics of basically the Miguel Alcubierre equation. So Al- Alcubierre in the 90s theorized uh, through mathematics the idea of warp drive, basically. And from everything that I've learned, the math is supposedly good, but the problem with Alcubierre's warp theory is that the amount of energy that would have been required to generate the, the twisting of space or the bending of space would have just been too as too to use the word, astronomical, too big. <laughs> we don't know yes. how to generate it. But what Sarfati was suggesting and I believe I've heard Eric Davis suggest this as well, uh, is that the the physics of this material somehow act as a way to slow down light. And if you're slowing down light, you're changing the equations enough so that you don't need all that energy. And he made this little uh, quip. He said, Dad, Maybe a AAA battery might do it. Yes. Now, because you're not is, using the energy from three space, you're tapping into the infinite energy of four space and above. Right. So anyway, I think that this is very interesting physics, and I don't know if he's right, but I mean, I tried to understand it the best I could, and honestly, it sounded pretty damned reasonable. And so I would like to see what kind of follow-up, if any, there will be. Well, look at the story uh, I talked about a few minutes ago with the double layers of graphene skewed right. exactly 1.1 tetrahedral degrees. Right. It, it right. shows you that you can make these these materials, particularly in, in zero gravity, microgravity, 
And the sky, <clears throat> pun intended, is not the limit. Yeah, the big problem that I think our scientists have had for many, many years is in the realm of material science, it seems yep. to me. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, they, you know, they understood a lot of elements about these craft, but I, I don't think that we've been at a point where we can create the kinds of materials that they have known how to create until now where I think the impression that I get uh, again, I'm no expert here, but that we've, we've gotten much closer to sophistication in that, well, and that we might that, be able to do Did you see that story the other day where the U.S. Navy is crowing about a patent to control gravity? No. Yes. I think I missed that one. It came out as part of the whole you know, Tic Tac disclosure. Shortly after they acknowledged that those videos were there, real. Oh, I remember. Yes, 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 yes. They then, exactly. you know, basically right. published blueprints for a real spacecraft. Right. Well, we're there. Now, I, I think there's been some debate as to how valid those patents are. Um, but, yes, I know that they put that out there. Again, I don't know where part of a larger piece. Are we looking at factions or are we looking at a controlled release because it's time? The calendar model, in the ritual calendar model, because this has to be timed with the change of the physics. Well, it comes down to, to, to is TTSA part of a higher level operation? And, you know, I know people who argue that they are, but well, I, we, I have never We seen both evidence. know one of them, remember? <laughs> I'm sorry, who? We both know one of them, Stephen. Oh, he thinks they're part of a. Uh, oh yeah, he state. thinks they're totally deep state intelligence agencies. Well, you know, I, I believe if you present evidence, I have not seen evidence for that. Uh, Christopher Mellon's probably the most prominent of them in terms of government, and uh, he's had a very good career, and he's a very intelligent guy. And I've spoken to him myself. I, I think he's genuinely engaged in the subject of UFOs. If he's taking marching orders from somewhere else, it's possible. Uh, he's, also, he's certainly wheels. getting a lot of fight. Yeah, wheels from within the Pentagon. Okay, so let's 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 if, go. If, let's, if it's a controlled rollout, uh, there's not everyone has gotten the memo. Well, that's always the case when right. decisions are made. There are people that agree and people that don't. Okay, let's go back to the breakaways. I think he has allies. I don't know if he's got uh, from up high. I don't know how high it goes. And when you Just say Mellon, give people a background on who Mellon is again. Uh, yeah, he was – I'm trying to remember his exact title. He was an undersecretary of defense, was it? High, he was a high-level defense department official back in the, 90, the 2000s, I think early 2000s, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. In the Obama administration. Yeah, was it W. Bush or Obama or maybe both? He's um, very he's very well plugged in. Okay. That's for sure. And and uh, and, and his he, claim is he is the force behind TTSA in my opinion as well. Uh, he's like the number one driving factor of that organization. Well, if you get a whole bunch of people that can't agree, you know, and you have one cowboy that says basically says it's time, and they put their you know pedal to the metal. Well, well there's no evidence that th that this is coming from anywhere up higher though. So someone's got to present a case. When they present a case, I'll be on board. When you say up higher, right you I, mean in the acknowledged government we look at, but we already established there anyone, are two universes. Any, any, any source that's behind TTSA, no one has identified anything. I hear people saying it's a CIA disinfo op, and that right. just roll my eyes. 
you know, when yeah, I I'm trying that. to remember what it was that Bassett said that made me think that it was not totally because I don't see this as operating without control. You know, when we get disclosure, it's going to be their disclosure, not real disclosure. But my model is that once you're pregnant, they cannot control all aspects and the cover up will fall, revealing really what's going on and what has been going on. You cannot keep it once people see once people are. I would have thought that five years ago. I don't think I believe that anymore. Really? I think that that's, yeah. I th- well, we've moved into a completely new, uh, the complete takeover of digital media. You know, we're we're in an era, and I mean, where forget shadow banning. It's just like absolute complete control over. I keep hearing all this, and I keep seeing all these things mentioned. People send me web links and all kinds of. of there's no censorship. It's not on U- YouTube. But that means that it's screened from those. You deplatformed countless political. No, I said just because it's not on YouTube doesn't mean it's not getting around. No, no, we're not in old 1930s style uh, censorship. We're in a different era, a different type of censorship. So, but no, we're absolutely moving down that road. Uh, you know, where corporations are really doing the work that governments used to do. And, well, look at Musk and the whole idea of a private, a private city and a colonization of effort of Mars. I mean, there was a time when I thought that was the worst thing that could happen in terms of, of transparency of what's really out there. But if Musk and others can give us the technology so that you can fund on your own for the price of a Mercedes, a, price, a private mission to go and look at all the stuff and find the libraries, you know, the – the extraordinary you know, advances that Musk is making possible with conventional rocket technology is bringing the cost down so you, know, you can create a private spacecraft that has an anti-gravity drive, rich, and then you can literally loft it into space as a getaway special, a CubeSat on one of Musk's rockets or one of NASA's and, launches. And, and if he has total freedom and commercial leeway to do what he's doing, then that would be awesome. But we'll find out. Uh, won't somehow we? I, I don't. Well, he's already a defense contractor. He's had to get a uh, along with Bigelow. Yeah, but he's not the These only guy. Are, he's not the only guy. There's the there's the the group out of New Zealand. There's a whole bunch of people in Seattle. I mean, I know some that's people. The thing. So the question is, I've I've wondered the same thing. So, uh, I think in the early phases of the commercialization of space, we'll probably end up seeing more of the same in terms of lack of information coming out and let's just say cover up uh, because the, especially the U.S. contractors are going to be completely beholden to uh, classified dictates. I don't see any way around it because they're getting into space with the help of the defense industry. Okay. Let me, let so me lay it. They're, they're, so they're not going to be, they're not free players. All right. We not don't have an awful lot of time. It's amazing. The show has gone so quickly. Let's go back to the breakaways. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, so I, I think what has happened is that at some point, um, maybe in the 1950s, more likely in the 1960s or beyond, some of our very smart classified uh, scientists in the classified world developed a method for creating their own version of a flying saucer that worked pretty well. Um, and that has remained classified. And I think there has been other science and other technology that has similarly been classified for the same reasons that they're too disruptive. And so when I uh, thought about this, I, I asked myself, well, what is it that constitutes a separate civilization? What makes a civilization unique? Well, one thing is its level of technology. One is its 
social organization. Another might even be its cosmology, its, its notion of of where it is in the larger universe. And I thought, well, in all of those areas, like this classified world could very well be completely in a different place than the rest of us poor slobs who don't know about any of these breakthroughs. And I thought, could that allow them to qualify as a separate civilization, one that has broken away from our own? And I thought, yes, absolutely. Now, um, I've well, always well, hang on, hang on, hang on. The theory. Two days ago, Elon Musk, yeah. in a tweet, formally set out that he wants to establish a breakaway civilization on Mars. Is that phrase? Say that? Yes. That phrase? Yes. Oh. I was going to actually put up in my news items the actual tweet, <laughs> and I, it kind of got lost in the shuffle and getting ready for the show. But we will do that again post uh, you know, oh. Club 19.5. Yeah, Musk has basically said, and it will not operate under any current governmental rules of planet Earth. He's saying he's making a breakaway well, right there. He's, well, and may, maybe there could be success. Look, you, you go back to the history of exploration 500 years ago, and uh, you know people were sailing from their countries to the new world, new lands, and some they did establish separate countries eventually, didn't they? So maybe Elon. Which led to this experiment? The United States of America, unique experiment in history and time, that was. Put in place to do what? To do something. I think, and this gets us all into the whole COVID-19 thing, the reason that we're so suffering is because someone has put a big bullseye on the United States so that we are not players in this whole breakaway civilization confrontation, which is coming up or which we're in the middle of right now. Um, I'm agreeing with some, some of the ideas that you have in there. I'm not sure that I would formulate it all together like that, but uh... – Definitely, okay. we're seeing. All right, we got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour. So let me bring up specifically because the thing that really intrigued yeah. me okay. is that through the work of people like Farrell and others, I'm well aware of the Nazi uh, World War II and post-war technological developments in both the energy mm -hmm. area and anti-gravity. There is this model that they basically took their developed saucers and left. And went somewhere. And it's the old joke about where does the 800-pound gorilla sleep? I don't even know if Joe believes that, though. I mean – Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he does. He just doesn't they, believe – They left the planet? He just – yes. He just doesn't believe that they had help. He thinks the Nazis developed this stunning two decades of technological development on their own. And okay. I think that someone outside, members of the family with very weird – you know, Two decades? So in the 30s and then in the 40s 20s, 50s. 20s, 30s. Or, you know, they had mentors. Beyond, right. In World War II. Yeah, they had mentors. And then when they, quote, lost, their mentors simply rescued them, took them off planet, and they've had 75 years to develop an independent Nazi civilization, which kind of came out yeah. in a very weird cultural form of that um, uh, uh, online movie called Iron Sky. Remember that? Oh, out I've of heard Finland. Of movie, yeah. I haven't seen it. So he believes they are where? Mars? They can be anywhere they want to. Now, so when, they, they figured out space travel. Yeah. His, now, when you, okay. when you, when you yeah. companion the idea of basically limitless spaceflight, real spacecraft, mm -hmm. you don't have to observe home and transfers, and it doesn't take you every two years to get to Mars. You can go any Thursday, right? That completely changes the economics of the solar system, utilizing the resources. Right. Now, if yeah. we had if we had the NASA solar system where we're the only 
inhabited planet. We're coming up on the break here, so I don't want to miss it. Okay. And there's basically just a bunch of real estate out there. That would be one thing. But the thing which changes everything is our model is we live in a solar system filled with ancient, extraordinary, high-tech artifacts from not just extraterrestrials, but from previous past terrestrial high-tech civilization cycles. And it's all out there waiting to be accrued by whoever can get there first. And the Nazis did it in the 1950s. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Richard Dolan. We're talking about the breakaway civilization concept. Are there folks out there that basically have had a 75-year head start with all of these hyperdimensional torsion field technologies, partly homegrown, partly seeded from family out there? And are, have they been preparing? Have they been preparing to basically at some point go to war with the established governments of planet Earth because ultimately they want to take control. That's the idea. And stay tuned in the next half hour for evidence that this exactly has now been initiated. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nominally access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs. $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio or pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. One last half hour to go. Um, Richard. Um, yes. If the Nazis did all this, they've had almost a century to develop not only their own technologies, but to steal, to borrow, to copy, to duplicate all that they found out there. At what point? I mean, I've always wondered in this model. At what point do they basically look back at Earth and say, it's the only place we can live without bubbles and plastic and domes and underground facilities and radiation problems and all that? 
at what point do they resume their effort, which was what World War II was about, to basically take over and dominate planet Earth? Right, well, there's a couple of uh, uh, premises there that I don't know that I agree with, and, and I will start with saying that I don't think that I agree with the fact that they actually did what Joseph or yourself are suggesting. But, but if, if they did, like if they did do that, and I consider that to be – that would be like a miracle because uh, even if you have developments in one or two areas of science, to, to actually do the kind of space travel that is being suggested here would require, um, I, I think, a lot more, a lot more than, uh, than just a couple of breakthroughs. But anyway, so let, let's say they did that. I still think that they would be very much hamstrung because technology and weaponry here on planet Earth has proceeded very much apace and probably would have outstripped anything that they have anyway. Like I seriously doubt that whatever infrastructure they took with them out into space, if they were able to do that, could not have been very large. How many millions of people would they be able to take? Not many. So how would they possibly be able to compete? With weapons development of the United well, States, let me, let me, let me stop you there. They get their asses kicked. Because obviously you missed a key part of the model, which is there's a huge technological infrastructure lying out in the solar system that's available to anybody who has the means to get there. It's underground on the moon. It's underground on Mars. It's underground on the, the moons of the outer solar system. I, I'm not aware of any of this evidence. Well, so I, see, I don't know what to make of it. It just seems... Um, I will begin sending you data. Well, but, but see, your work in UFOs would seem fanciful to mainstream scholars of the Cold War. No, absolutely, and it, it's my obligation to present evidence to them to the contrary. And it's our obligation, so since you have asked, to, to present to evidence me. to you. But if I can establish to your satisfaction that, in fact, this kind of evidence exists, then it changes everything. Because instead of having to invent stunning torsion field technologies. You simply translate the damn libraries. And that would be the key that you would need, the way to translate into, you know, 20th or 21st century terms, you know, mm. science and technology that could be, you know, I hate the old cliche, a thousand, 10,000 years beyond us. But the physics itself, once you crack the basic physics, the rest is simply application. And as we've seen the development of right. better, better materials. Exactly. Well, yeah, so the, this library you're talking about, I guess – Or libraries. Remember, right? distributed internet. You don't have one library anymore. <laughs> well, you just mentioned library. I think like a library out in space or – I'm not sure what you were saying, but you were implying that there's this knowledge and this infrastructure is out there. Yeah. And I, I simply don't know what that – what evidence is for that. Well, uh, I, I, I can't is, latch on to it if I don't. Yeah, no, this is a very long conversation. And obviously, if you haven't seen the data, it would be unfair uh, right. to basically, uh, uh, you yes. know. But yeah, what we'll do is what we've, learning curve here. Exactly. We will suspend that part of, you know, the assumptions until you have a chance to look at the data. And then we'll come back and we'll we'll, we'll have another program because. What I, what I will say is that I think that there's a tremendous amount of clandestine commercialization of space using probably some very advanced tech. Okay. Um, and I've been told this by uh, a source that I think that I believe a uh, very, very experienced man uh, with these matters. So that essentially saying, look, the power is in 
it's all with defense contractors who really kind of run the show. And he was implying to me that there's – and he didn't really get into specific tech, but that there's some very, very advanced tech that is out there that we would just think are alien extraterrestrial UFOs. And he's saying we're probably making a lot of that stuff. So I thought that was interesting. And my idea of a breakaway civilization, let me just uh, – I'll say this because I I coined the phrase. I, I was the first person to write this idea out. But I've definitely noticed that my concept of it is uh, much more conservative than that of a number of other people. And that's not to criticize other folks. <laughs> people are allowed to make that idea the way they want to make it. It's fine. But I developed it in a very uh, – I'll, I'll just say this very freely – a very careful, defined way. And what I – discovered is that it was a really super cool phrase that people said, oh, love that, and and people ran with it. Now, folks like yourself and jo- Joseph were both – you were both early on in building on that, and you know that's totally legit. So I would never claim that like I, I know exactly what this is. <laughs> I don't know. It's just an idea that I can't – None of us with. know, but the yeah. evidence is so provocative, and it's really there. All you have to do is know where to look. See, so exactly. much of so this, the like, is how advanced is it? That's the question. How advanced? Well, uh, look, I know, and I can guarantee on the radio tonight, live around the world, that given enough money, and we're not talking millions, we're talking hundreds of thousands, I can put together a CubeSat launched as a piggyback mission by either uh, the rocket folks out of New Zealand or Musk or one of the other private players into Earth orbit, turn the damn thing on. And two weeks later, it'll be orbiting Pluto in private hands, Richard. Once you get beyond a certain point, you cannot keep the secrets down on the farm. It will, at exponential rates, go asymptotic, and a whole bunch of private groups and private people and private entrepreneurs. You yeah, know, I, I actually agree. I agree with this premise, and this is why I think we're going to see a much faster global lockdown in terms of uh, information. I mean, it'll just be a ramping up of what we're already seeing. Well, they're going to try, but they won't succeed. See, the difference well, is I'm an optimist. That would be nice. we're, we're turning into a one big China. So like right now, you look at a country like China, and they actually have succeeded in creating a complete uh, controlled society. They, they are the geniuses of totalitarianism. And what we can also see is that other governments around the world want to be exactly like that. They think that's the greatest idea, and that includes Western governments and Western uh, media as well. They're in love with it. So again, I'm not I so sure. I we're, agree. We're maybe one or two generations away. Hey, look, we I got we, we we have. Sorry to interrupt, but we have 20 minutes left. So let me get to the yeah. good stuff. Well, so I just want to I want to say this though. So by the time that there are explorers discovering Pluto or discovering libraries on Mars or any of that, by that time. It's quite possible that that will be irrelevant because total information control on this planet over this population might very well be complete, and it won't freaking matter. Okay, let me ask you two questions then. Yeah. How long in your extrapolation do you think this this total lockdown, this robotic slave society of planet Earth take to to complete? Uh, Probably 20 years. Uh What if I told you that we could have evidence of a whole – Interplanetary ancient civilization in two. Well, that would be pretty awesome. 
we're in a foot race. It's like it's us against our would-be controllers. I've believed this for many, many years. That I will, I, whoever, I will agree with you on that. Yes, first yes. wins. Yeah, we are, we are in a race. The question is, who's going to win? And this goes back to this once every 26,000-year set of choices that a number of my guests on this show have discussed over the last several months, particularly in terms of this bizarre sudden eruption of COVID-19. Many oh, months you want to do COVID? Yeah, exactly. I bet where we're going right now. I believe, as I said at the top of the show, that the Chinese did not originate it. They did not create it, despite all the false trails laid in the libraries and the patent offices all around the planet. That this basically came from outer space, came from the breakaways as the beginning of their takeover of the planet. And one of my sources for this information is a totally separate analysis by a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Chandra Vikrama Singh, who's probably the world's most accredited and uh, credentialed and credible astrobiologist. Um, Chandra and his colleagues like uh, Sir Fred Hoyle have been monitoring in deep interstellar space and in interplanetary space actual microorganisms, living biological entities in the galaxy, in interstellar clouds, in the solar system for decades. And they have never been able to get their papers published in any of the major you know, journals like Nature, Science, etc., because it's, it's persona non grata. We're not supposed to know that life is incredibly ubiquitous in the universe. And it does not, in Chandra's model with his colleagues, originate on planets. It originates once in the universe in 14 billion years and then replicates like crazy through directed or casual panspermia. Are you talking about viruses? Or yeah, yeah all, bacteria, you know, viruses. viruses, whatever. And then when they land on the right planet, on the right environment – the evolution of the Darwinian thing goes on there in these crucibles, but you're not going to find that magic little pool on planet Earth where life developed because it came from outer space. So with this as background, when I began looking at some of the COVID-19 data, I got very, very intrigued because it seemed to me that, in fact, instead of escaping from a lab in Wuhan, this thing had been designed by somebody and had been injected into the planetary environment from outside the Earth, outside the planet, from orbit or beyond. And I was stunned to find that Chandra, through his independent analysis and sources, had come to the same conclusion. Well, and is now. So. It was interesting that it seems very closely related to the other coronaviruses that we know about and have studied and that have been had patented, you know, the SARS coronavirus. Well, but wait, wait, wait. It's, 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 very, it's got a, it, a, from what I understand, I'm not a virologist, but it seems to have a relationship to other coronaviruses. Well, but it had to in order to attack human beings, which means what if this is an old bioweapon left over from the ancient solar system wars? And our breakaway friends didn't create it, they simply packaged it and delivered it. Doesn't and it seemed like a much more complicated explanation than to saying that it was managed and tweaked. Do you a remember a film called The Andromeda Strain? Weapons, weapons Lab. Remember The right? Andromeda Strain? Yeah. Remember the movie? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. There was a terrestrial group wanted to develop a bioweapon. They put it into space. It mutated and then became this virulent thing that they were all trying to suppress before it destroyed the human race. 
As I said at the top of the show, the thing that's intrigued me about COVID-19 is it attacks so many aspects, and those it does not kill, 30% it leaves maimed. Yes, it's a very – it's an interesting virus. Like the mortality and morbidity rates of that are way down, actually way down. But it does, it does other things, and I was listening to you earlier, and it, it, I mean it attacks the lungs. It attacks the heart. It attacks the brain. It attacks the reproductive capabilities. And it, and it seems to do so – I don't know if it's random or not, but it, it seems to be in a way that I don't think scientists yet know how to predict these things. But it, it does a lot of different types of damage to the human organism. That's very interesting. To me, that speaks to its being bioengineered, uh, weaponized, and probably by the Chinese because it just so happened it, the epicenter was right outside that – Level four. So you keep saying the Chinese. Let me let me let me tell you why I think the Chinese were the first victims. Okay. In World War II, the Nazis, we think, I think. Well, they were the first victims. There's no argument. The the virus came out there first. Yeah, but did they do it to themselves or was it done to them? Let me. My personal theory, uh, which I haven't gotten to say, but I, I have believed pretty much from the beginning, and I haven't been dissuaded that it was artificially created and accidentally released. Okay. All right. I think. All right. So it was being created by the Chinese to do what? Well, good question. Why? Why does anyone screw around with coronaviruses? It's not just China. We do it here. The U.S. has Fort Detrick. We've got Dugway. We've got all kinds of places where we have been working on bioweapons, chemical weapons for generations. The Russians have the same. Okay. Everyone's realizing. See, I've been asking from the beginning. I've been asking from the beginning. There's people, you know, we're incredibly politically divided. There are groups that don't want to wear masks. There are groups that think that this is somehow an attack on their personal sovereignty. You know, like, why do we have seatbelts? Why are there laws about wearing seatbelts? I'm, I'm one of the very hardcore anti-lockdown people. I'm just letting yeah, you know. Yeah, but locking it down and wearing a mask are totally different things. Wearing a mask prevents you from having to lock down. I'm against lockdowns, sure. too, because yeah. they're not going to work. The old-fashioned pandemic treatment to keep people apart and keep them from, you know, transmitting saliva is basically what we're going on here. The point is, my question has been from the beginning, if we're not supposed to underestimate COVID-19, oh, it's just the flu, you know, the, the mortality rates are nothing to worry about. You know, sure, tell that to the quarter million people that are, are now, you know, gone. What's its real purpose? Because it's not a very efficient killer. It's very inefficient. No. But the, but the fact that 30% of people who have symptoms and recover have this weird brain fog, this weird malaise, the so-called long haulers. Is it that many? 30%? Yes, 30%. That's what was staggering. Staggering number. That's 30%. That's incredibly high. Because there there the, are studies also talking about reproductive uh, failure. That's and, the uh, next men. question I was going to get to. As well. do, do you yeah. remember, as I said at the top of the show, you know, Stargate SG-1? Yeah, I and and, and the whole Shen thing of basically sterilizing their enemies so they just walked in. What if the breakaways, looking ahead fifty years, another half century, which for them is nothing, they look ahead to when they can move into planet Earth because all you got to do is make a couple of generations sterile, and suddenly you can take the planet. It's yours. Yeah, this I've actually been talking about this idea with a few people, and not in terms of the breakaway like the nazi breakaways doing it because i don't see them as the suspect here why not because i don't think that they went off world oh that you're you're thinking they did 
Hmm. I just don't believe that they did. I so guess if I'll I were to, to believe that they did and that they had a, a powerful, viable civilization somewhere off of Earth, then I might come – I would revisit that thought, and I would say, oh, well, Hoagland was right here. Okay, on, the, on right. our next show, I will, on our next show, I promise I will bring to the table the actual evidence that the breakaways are currently tonight living on the moon, real scientific evidence. And I'll give you a hint if you want to go looking before we do the show. The Indian government gave us the data. Okay. Well, we, we know about the water that's there. I think, look, if you've got the technology, you could create a base, I would assume, underground, some secure environment. Mm. You have energy. You can get oxygen, get water. You still have to figure out a way to get food. Unless, There's a lot of million logistical unless, issues, but if you've got good transpo, you go back and forth to Earth. Right, right. Steal, okay. steal some cows, some pigs, whatever. So take it, take it one Fry step further. On the moon. Take it one step further. You have transport. I mean, you can go anywhere. Okay, yeah. and get home for lunch, for dinner, whatever. You know, like at one G, you know, it takes three hours to get to the moon from a standing start to a dead stop. Instead of three days, not too bad. No, three, you know, three hours or three days? Three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. And that's Time at one. Up. And that's at one G. Now, if you actually have inertial nullification as part of this technology, which probably is true. We know the capability must exist. We look at UFO reports. These objects can do that. They can instantly accelerate. They're not subject to things like wind resistance. They're obviously able. They're, they're somehow stretching, bending, twisting mm-hmm. space-time in such a way that they're able. They're not, they're not flying in a traditional sense, right? See, one of the things they're, I want to do is to set up this CubeSat. Yeah. You know, NASA actually, you know, last year they flew two CubeSats past Mars. You, you know what a CubeSat is, right? Uh, maybe. It's basically NASA's democratization, mass production of little modular satellites to where you put okay. them together like Legos and you start with one module and you can add modules to ultimately it gets to be maybe three feet across and weighs five kilograms or whatever. And then you put any instruments in it that you want. You get someone to launch it for you gratis, which a whole bunch of companies are doing for schools yeah. and high schools and colleges and you know just civic groups. You can have your own satellite. What I want to do is to basically take one of these CubeSats, put this drive in it, this superconductive anti-gravity drive, turn it on and see what happens because it will go and go and go and it will never stop. Does it actually stop at the speed of light? Do we get the strange relativistic effects we've been told we should get? Or does it, in fact, just keep accelerating? This is an awesome experiment, which we can do for the price of a Mercedes, given the infrastructure that Musk and Bezos and the others are kindly providing gratis to civilization. Bezos is doing this? Yes. Bezos is one of the contractors in the development of the lunar lander for Project Artemis, competing directly with Musk. Why not? He does cloud computing for the Alphabet agencies. He owns the Post. He he is in – he is so deep. See, this is why, though, the the privatization is not going to provide freedom and information to people. These guys are all working at the apex of the system. They are the man. 
they're integrated into the whole national security apparatus. There's no way in hell Bezos is going to just say, oh, here, humanity, here's your information and your alien artifacts. Like, that will never happen. All right, let me give you another example. Um, Musk is talking about getting his starship together and making a circumlunar mission with a starship launched from Texas, taking, I guess, eight or nine artists and this Japanese billionaire or whatever in a close orbit around the moon and then back to Earth, right? Hmm. Okay, yes. He planned to do that several years ago on a Falcon Heavy, and then things kind of developed, and he said, well, we're going to wait till the Starship because it's, you know, basically, you know, much, much better design. If he does that, and each of those tourists has a smartphone and photographs all the lunar ruins that I can show them on the lunar surface where to take the photographs Mm -hmm. and broadcast it live from the Starship as it's rounding the moon – through the 4G network that NASA is going to set up around the lunar surface. You're aware of that, right? With a German subcontractor, they're setting up 4G for the moon. Um, I did. I've heard this. I haven't, I haven't dive, dove in, but yes, I've heard about I've it. I've got this. I've got the news stories. You know, we talked about mm-hmm. it months ago. Point is, you can't suppress that kind of live television smartphone coverage. Yeah, I think this is potentially these are important issues. So it's entirely possible. This is why we call it a foot race. You know, will we, will people, ordinary people get to these, some kind of breakthrough information is really what we're talking about. Or will it all happen too late after the whole world becomes like China? And that's really the question. And Richard, I hope that your optimism turns out to be (laughs) the true result here. I would rather you be right than me on this matter. But what I'm seeing is a very rapid last five years, particularly the six, five, six years, a rapid devolution well, toward let's, let's go back one to my, big anthill. Let's go back to my COVID-19 model. No, I don't like anthills, especially. Uh, All right. No. The right. Chinese from 2013 through mm-hmm. a couple of years ago sent two missions to the moon, right? Chang three and Chang four. Okay. Yes. The Chang three mission unmanned first, Chinese unmanned landing on the moon landed in a place called Mari Imbrium, which is incredibly romantic. You know, every sci-fi novel, every astronomical journal talks about Mari Imbrium. It's the big left-hand dark sea when you look at the full moon on a full ah, moon night. Okay, right. They they were supposed to land in a place called Sinus Iridum, which is the Bay of Rainbows, and instead they completely fooled the world press. All other space agencies, all other intelligence agencies, by suddenly sending commands to their spacecraft to get out of orbit immediately, and they completely sidestepped the planned landing zone and time, and they wound up landing on the moon in Mari Imbrium at 44 degrees north and 19.5 degrees west. And Again 19, with the 19.5. 19.5 is the whole it 19.47? Yes, exactly. That's why 1947 was when everything, all hell broke loose. Come on, it's a ritual calendar because it's time to the physics. Anyway, so the, the Chinese not only land at 19.5, but on their website for their, for their Chang 3 mission, the website, you know how websites are designed, right? Artists and links and all this. It's sure. filled with background tetrahedrons. 
What the hell did tetrahedrons have to do with a Chinese unmanned robot to, 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 to the moon? They were tipping off the West. They're doing this. And, of course, the 44 was cute because they launched it during the 44th presidency of Barack Obama. Now we fast forward the film. And we launched Chang 4, which is the first unmanned robotic mission Chinese to the far side of the moon, right? Plunk it okay. down on the moon exactly opposite in terms of a line stretched between the front side of the moon and the back side, directly through the center of the moon, between Chang wow. 3 and Chang 4, because they're measuring the hyperdimensional physics of the moon that I have measured during total solar eclipses with our Accutron technology. And then they published pictures in the open literature of the amazing ruins on the far side of the moon. So if they were the designated hitters for the breakaways, they violated their treaty not to get ahead of the curve and certainly not to leak what's really out there. And I think Wuhan was a direct slap in the face, and they have been lying to protect their face. Remember, for the Chinese, face is everything. He's saying – Published images. Yes. They published images of artifacts on the moon. Yes, I'll send them to you. Remember, yeah, you only have, have so many I news. Seen these. You have, of course not. You only you only see so many hours in a day. There's only 24 hours in a day. The human being can only absorb information at a certain rate. So so much of what is going on on the planet is completely ignored because there's no way a human being can in fact find out what's going on and keep track of everything. That's why we have to have specialties. That's why we have to have, which we have, the other side of midnight, you know, global intelligence network. I have people who send me all kinds of amazing stuff. So I have an article here in space.com. Chinese lunar rover has found something weird on the far side of the moon. Mm -hmm. This is August of 2019. That's part of their leakage. You know, drip, 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 drip. And so what actually, I'm trying to see what they have found here. I see lunar tracks. Uh, that's what it looks like. No, you're not going to see it in that article. Don't worry. I, I, I will send you some images, and you will be amazed what you're going to see. Cool. So, so anyway, this is kind of like the end of part one because we're <laughs> running out of time. You know, we got to do part two, so I'm going to invite you open an invitation when we have more data, and we'll both know it. Why don't you Good. come back, and we'll talk about the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Yes, indeed, Richard. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you, Richard. It took a long time, but I certainly think it was worth it. Tomorrow night, everybody, we're going to be talking about something very related. A researcher, a citizen scientist, who basically has come out with a book calling It's Not Aliens, It's Us, which is a continuation of tonight's conversation with Richard. So until tomorrow night, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.